everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Delapena, and on today's edition of the podcast, we have PSAL umpire and Commonwealth Cricket League umpire of New York and a hell of a lot of other cricket leagues around the country where he travels to do T20 officiating, Brian R. Kane who is based in New York, but born and raised in Pennsylvania and got into cricket late in life, but now is rising on the cricket scene in terms of the officiating done around the country. And he becomes our first umpire on the podcast. We've had a lot of different perspectives, but yet to have an umpiring perspective on the American cricket scene. So this is an episode I'm sure will be very insightful to hear from a different point of view. And Brian definitely presents that. And this will be the first of a two-part interview with Brian R. Kane. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket, is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. This week's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, I'm joined for the first time by an umpire, one of the well-known rising stars on the umpiring scene across the Northeast in particular, but he's also starting to become a regular face across a lot of the private T20 pop-up tournaments that happen around the country. But he's based in New York. He does a lot of work in the New York and New Jersey leagues and also the New York PSAL High School Cricket League as an umpire, Brian Kane. Brian, first umpire on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. We're making history today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. It is a glorious Monday night in New York. Um, the sounds of sirens and mating doves will keep us busy throughout the podcast tonight, um, just to add a bit of color for everybody else. But looking forward to sharing a little bit about uh, cricket in New York and what we're up to as umpires around the country. And uh, there, there is no shortage of things that you get up to. You, before we started recording, you were telling me uh, you got arrested while umpiring, or, or, or you, I guess you, you had to stop umpiring in order to get had mm-hmm. the cups thrown on you for that to happen. Uh, but there's, there's no shortage of stories, just like there's no shortage of stories for players and, and coaches. There's no shortage of stories uh, that you can share in your umpiring experiences in New York and elsewhere in the country. So we'll get through plenty of that. So first off, again, one of the things we try and do on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is highlight a lot of the stories from the American cricket community, specifically people who were born and brought up in America who often come from the quote-unquote non-traditional cricket background, mm-hmm. and you certainly fit that, Brian. So born and brought up in Northeast Philly in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. tell us, how did you get into cricket? Well, it's a, it's a long sporting journey uh, that starts on the recreational playing fields of Ardsley, Pennsylvania, just outside the Northeast of Philadelphia, where I grew up. My father and my mother are both athletes, um, and so they took it pretty naturally upon themselves to put me and my younger brother, who these days is, is, is taller than me, which is wild for a little brother. Um, but they made sure that we were in uh, lots of sports growing up. When I was growing up, we did soccer and swimming and lacrosse and I played basketball and I played a bunch of floor hockey and I uh, joined the cheerleading team for two weeks in seventh grade and uh, me and five other guys uh, started founded uh, the men's lacrosse team at our middle school they didn't have one so we filed a title nine complaint to our school so that five of us boys could wear skirts and play on the girls lacrosse team 
But like I said, this all comes from my family background as well. My mother was the first uh, woman to ever run cross country at Abington High School in Philadelphia, where we grew up. She uh, also joined uh, a men's team before there was a women's team to make sure that she could run cross country. So we have a bit of a sporting uh, tradition in our family. My grandfather and my father were both presidents of our local athletic association. Um, so they made sure that, uh, that me and my brother were both uh, at least exposed to sports growing up, that we had a good education in the Philadelphia Eagles, which mostly includes, you know, uh, yelling and screaming and throwing things at the television. Um, so I come from a very sort of hyped up uh, sports background and cricket is definitely a different side of the sporting coin than some of that. I was quite an aggressive defenseman in lacrosse and I was a goalkeeper in soccer. So I was really good at taking out people's legs uh, when they were trying to score on me and things like that. So I, I grew up, I played soccer, swimming and lacrosse uh, at my high school, varsity lettered in those three. I got recruited to play lacrosse in college, but I didn't have a drink in my life until I was 23 years old and out of college. And so when I joined the college lacrosse team and made the team, and then they tried to shove a bunch of booze down my throat on the first day, I wasn't having it. So I quit the team and became an actor instead. I was a professional actor for 10 years, starting at the age of 17, uh, working through in New York. I moved to New York in order to be a professional actor, not to be a professional sportsman. So I've gone on seven or eight different journeys on my way to cricket, but most directly the way I found cricket uh, was through Gaelic football, which is interesting because I started in Gaelic football. I have an Irish family, Irish background. I played a lot of Gaelic football in Baltimore and then in Philadelphia in the summer of 2008, 2009. Um, and then I moved to New York. I played a bit of Gaelic football here, but got recruited instead to the New York Magpies, the Australian rules football team here in New York, where I played on their senior team. I coached the women's team for a year. I was on the board uh, there as well. And it was through the Aussies that I really discovered a bit of cricket. And so as I found myself hurtling toward 30 with a couple of shoulder injuries that weren't able to get fixed because I haven't had insurance in 10 years, I decided to move to cricket, a sport where nobody would hopefully be trying to drag me to the ground at every opportunity. So I'd say I probably started watching cricket around 2011 or so, and then picked up a cricket ball for the first time in 2013 over in a tape ball league in New Jersey, which I think is just about the same place that you started. Nobody would speak English to me. They made fun of me that I showed up with my own bat because I had gone to the only cricket store in New York and bought a bat for $50 because I thought you needed some kind of equipment just to show up and play. I didn't need that in my first half a season as a tape ball cricketer uh, where nobody would speak to me, but it was a nice time. Uh, from there, I found my way to the Columbia Cricket Club here in New York City, the famous Columbia Club here in New York City. There are purported stories of them playing cricket on the campus of Columbia in the 1850s. The Columbia Cricket Club, as it currently stands, was founded in the 90s by a group of students there. I don't think there's any more students on the team. No, but. you know, I, I, I was, I've been, you know, you're the second guy I've had on this podcast, Brian, who's been a member of the Columbia Cricket Club, which I used to be a member of Columbia Cricket Club as well. I know. And it was Nosh, right? Nosh, Nosh was Our there. Our boy Nosh. Nosh, Nosh Kenjigay. So we were we, six degrees of separation. We've been part of the mm -hmm. same club, but not exactly the same time. We just, just missed overlapping by a year or two. But yeah, it's called Columbia Cricket Club now. It used to be Columbia University Cricket Club. It's mm -hmm. called Columbia Cricket Club. Now, I'm not smart enough to go to Columbia. 
So um, <laughs> I'm fortunate that they've turned it into Columbia Cricket Club because otherwise I would never been allowed to be a member of, of Columbia Cricket Club. So now they've expanded the membership. You don't have to be enrolled as a student at Columbia to be part of Columbia Cricket Club. And they're one of the most welcoming mm-hmm. cricket clubs in, I would say, the tri-state area. So I'm not surprised that you were able to link up with them and have what sounds like was a, a good experience, at least from the in- initial description of what yeah. you're talking about. It was a great club. I mean, they were the only club in New York City that you could basically Google um, in 2013, 2014, when I was joining. With well, it's probably, it's probably the same way now. 2022, I don't think much has changed. A lot of these <laughs> cricket clubs in the Tri-State area, they don't really, they're not very, a sport that is involved with so many people in the IT industry and the South Asian community. It's shocking how few of them actually have functional websites. It's not what they're there for. I think that uh, these clubs in New York, so many of them, these clubs that have been around for years and years, I think are, are escapes for a lot of people. I think that people move to New York City, um, especially from the South Asian community, if they're not you know, big English speakers, they move to New York and they are in a whole new world. And maybe the only time they can get away from thinking about their jobs at IBM um, or at the various banks that these guys seem to work for that they come out on the Saturday and the Sunday and play a bit of cricket and don't want to have to worry about the rest of their life. That's what I stepped into as an umpire the first time. So, <laughs> so there's an awful lot to unpack. Let's go back to, I guess, growing up in Philly. You may have heard of people who are followers of the podcast, the Nate Habs episode. I'm not sure if I would have invited you on here, Brian, if I had known you were such a hardcore <laughs> Eagles fan. That's not kosher. Uh, well, from- it's... I've gone, I've gone a sort of far the other way. I was, I was raised that way, but I think American football, and I'm just going to make you more upset now because I think American football is like a garbage sport. Like I, when I, like there is absolutely no, there's no entertainment value to me in Ugh. watching Ugh. it. The sort of Ugh. stop start nature of it really annoys me. The constant advertising that there's, that there's a TV break every couple of minutes. Also Joe Buck can just like the fact that Matt, that man's still on national television baffles me every day so i'll say, I'll say this <laughs> the in-person experience you say all mm-hmm. those things mm-hmm. watching on tv you get a commercial break you're at home mm-hmm. and especially in december you're at home in december and mm-hmm. there's a commercial break you can go to the toilet you can get some food you can go get a drink whatever and it's the greatest thing ever being able to watch in my eyes anyway mm-hmm. a, a sporting event american football or otherwise in december where you got a nice heated home and when you've got all those tv timeouts and advertising breaks and you're sitting in the stadium and you have to sit through all those delays that's when you really notice how miserable it is in terms of the in-person game watching experience nowadays i used to be my family used to have season tickets for the new york giants going back to the 1960s and when i was growing up even through the 90s and early 2000s going to games I don't remember there being this many TV timeouts and this many mm-hmm. stoppages and the fan experience. You you went to the game to watch the game. You didn't go to the game to wait for the TV timeouts. So you could go and get a beer and get a hot dog or go to take another piss because it, some of these games, the, the last few games I went to, the fan base transitioned to, it was less about watching the game and going to the game anymore. It was more about go to the game so you can pay for a $15 beer go get your beer. Then after drinking too much beer, you got to take a piss. And then when you get back from your piss, you go and buy another beer. And then you, once you've done that, you got to take a piss again and you get up from your seat. And the people who are next to me, 
they, they you know they paid for our, our seats the last year we had giant seats before they moved into MetLife Stadium I think it was $135 a, a seat and into the new stadium I think they started at $150 the first year they were in MetLife Stadium why would you pay $150 to go to the stadium where you pay $50 for parking $150 for the ticket $15 for beer and you might actually watch less than 10 minutes of the actual game because mm-hmm. for the other 15, 50 minutes of the game on the game clock, which in real time is three, three and a half hours, you're spending five, sixths of the game either going to get a beer or taking a piss because you've had too much beer. And these people don't really watch too much of the game. So I'm kind of <laughs> confused as to what the point of it is of going to a game, <laughs> even with all these ad breaks. And, you know, yeah, you, you get a TV time out and it's, I got to go, got to go, got to go. And um, when you sit through this in, in September, it's kind of manageable and you can October. It's nice like, in September. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> October, you can kind of tolerate it. November, it's now it's starting to get a nuisance. And December, it's like, Jesus Christ, what am I thinking? Uh, why did I decide to come to this game? Because here's another ad break. Here's another TV timeout. The people at home don't really care, but I'm sitting here freezing my ass off in the stadium and I'm going to be freezing my ass off for another three and a half hours. And I paid 50 bucks for parking and I can't even park in the actual stadium lot anymore because they've closed that off for priority parking. You pay a Mm -hmm. separate tier to get only in the the actual stadium parking lot. And then you've got to pay another $20 to get a shuttle bus to a satellite lot. So when you actually leave the stadium, you're standing in line for an hour, maybe two hours, depending on when you leave the game. If you leave with five minutes to go or if you stay the extra five minutes to see the ending, you're going to cost yourself another two hours of freezing your ass off standing in line for a, a shuttle bus to take you to a satellite lot before and after the game. So all these things you take them into consideration. And, and yeah, the TV timeout aspect of it makes the experience less fun in person, but that you're at home. It's like, Hey, I, I've got time to go and do what I want. And now I can mm-hmm. take a break. And what, but in person is where I can't tolerate anymore, which is why cricket generally. Well, exactly. Speaking, You've got your ad breaks. You can you they squeeze them in over the course of the natural flow of play. Yeah. So if they can squeeze in an ad and sometimes two if they're pushing it between and over, then that's just the natural course of play. It's not scheduled. Um, I which think is that, yeah, one of the reasons I why I like it, cricket because and why a lot of a lot of I'm curious to get your opinion about this because and I find this a lot from talking to other Americans about this, mm-hmm. is that when the concept of cricket is introduced, they're told, Oh my god, you're never gonna like it. It's it's too long, it's seven hours, and you don't have time for that. And you're going to think it's long and boring. But when you actually get an American to sit at a cricket match, physically get them into the ground, mm-hmm. they actually say they don't think it takes long. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? And they say the pacing of the play. The pacing of the play, yeah. it's always moving. So you're always engaged. And it's not this stereotypical description of it being boring because you don't have these... Yeah, you have subtle breaks in between deliveries, but that's just the natural flow of play. But mm-hmm. you don't have these extended three, four, five-minute media timeouts Mm -hmm. and others um, stoppages where it just prolongs, especially in the time game, you you psychologically think, all right, 60 minutes on the clock is going to take an hour and it'll stretch three, three and a half hours or, you know, an NBA game or NHL, whatever. You don't have that in cricket. And a lot of people who are new to it, who are told to have this preconceived notion about it when they actually are exposed to it, they say, actually, I prefer the speed of cricket. And people hear that who are part of the cricket community and they, they think like, are you being serious? Are you being mm-hmm. crazy? Are you pulling my leg? And, and they're like, no, no, no. Like the pacing of play, I actually genuinely think this is a faster game and it's keeping me my attention. And even though it took seven hours to complete, the pacing was continuous and, and quick and kept me occupied and engaged. And I and not only that, I'd like to come back for day two 
in day mm-hmm. three and day four. And I'd like to watch a whole test match. And this is actually quite fun. And I, I'm curious what, what your take is on, on that whole kind of point of view, whether you hold that or, or something else attracted you to cricket when you were first getting involved in it. I think that I realized pretty early that the way that mainstream American sports were sold to us is an entertainment package with, you know, it's, it's a four hour enter- entertainment package with 60 minutes of play scattered throughout that. It's like you said, it's the same way at the NBA. The, the only professional sports I've been to this year was an NBA game um, when I was in Utah with my partner and her family. But just then you can see that they call timeout and then you know that their 60 second timeout is over, but you know the ads are still playing and the players are standing on the court waiting to come back on and in the stadium they make one more announcement about Dietz and Watson presents such and such kid in the crowd who's going to throw a t-shirt at his mom or something I don't know whatever it is that they're doing to promote the game and I never enjoyed that aspect of professional American sports I wanted to sit down I wanted to watch a game and I wanted to let the game sort of unfold in front of me I think it's why probably as a kid I liked ice hockey the most as a sport uh, to watch on tv because you really can sit and the play happens. The play sort of develops in front of you unless the ice, or sorry, unless the puck leaves the ice or unless there's a fight or something. I'll talk about the politics of fighting in hockey another time. But um, there's a fight or something, the play doesn't stop. It's pretty much ongoing the whole time. Um, and it really annoyed me at some point in middle school, maybe early high school, to find out that American football and baseball were derivatives of these other sports that have a natural flow to them. You know, um, I wrote my, I, I have a degree in history from York College of Pennsylvania, and I wrote my thesis, my bachelor's thesis paper um, on the development of football throughout the British Empire and how it developed differently and how America came up with their own version, the Irish came up with their own version, and the Australians came up with their own version, and then the English still have their version that they call real football, right? But I think that the the history of a sport, the more you can stay connected to its past, I think is really important, at least for me, for the enjoyment of that sport. Um, So like I said, I I came through a history degree as well. And I think that that's part of why I connect with things like Gaelic football, Australian football, um, hurling as well in the Gaelic games, and then with cricket. These are sports that come from the empire, but that have also thrown off the empire. In America, we saw rugby and we decided that's not ours. We want to make a new sport about it. In India, they saw cricket and said, we can be better at this than the people who brought it to us. And we're going to use that um, as a show of force against this sort of longstanding oppression from the Western world. And I think that that is incredible. And I think that the way that that history permeates every bit of cricket, even down to you know which league you play for, and which uh, teams you want to sign up for and how you have found your way to cricket. I think that the history and the colonialism of the sport affects all of that. And so I sort of see American history. Um, I went to college looking to do some kind of history, but not sure what I wanted to do. And I saw that American history just looked so short and not really as interesting as I thought it was when we're in high school and you grow up with a very standard American public school uh, idea of history. So sports was the way that I was able to explore a conduit through that. And it's, I've sort of come to cricket basically in my thirties because I myself have slowed down a little bit and I don't want to tackle people to the ground as much as I used to. And I've 
tried to break away as much as possible from the stereotyped, you know, angry man. I'm an angry man. My dad is an angry man. My grandfather's an angry man. I'm sure his father was an angry man too. But I'm trying to throw that off a little bit by looking at history and finding something that speaks to me a little more as I'm the age that I am now and have the interests that I have now. That's a really typical Brian Arcane answer because I'm not sure what the question was. Who cares what the question was? <laughs> I'm here to tell stories. It's what I do. <laughs> uh, well, the original question was... The Getting things, into cricket. The, yeah, yeah. The history the things, is a big part of it. <laughs> the things about, you know, what, what would attract an American mm -hmm. to like cricket in terms of the counter to the stereotypes that are often given as reasons why Americans mm -hmm. would not like cricket. Mm -hmm. The American sports bro is kind of like my least favorite human being on the planet. And so I've always wanted to find a different way to go about doing sports rather than just playing one of the big four or I grew up playing mostly soccer and soccer has become really a major sport here, which is amazing uh, to see. And let's hope that the same thing can happen with cricket in the coming years. But yeah, I, I have a good time uh, sort of breaking through the stereotypes. Um, I've never wanted to be just the person who came from where I came from and is just that. There's enough people who live in their hometown and send their kids to the same high school that they went to. And that's perfectly fine, but it isn't my story and it's not what I've been interested in. I moved to New York to be an actor. So <laughs> a couple of things I want to talk about. Well, I, I think maybe we'll, we'll pick up on that first before we go back to cricket. So you had a, a long winding journey where you got to where you are now mm -hmm. trying to be a full-time cricket professional umpire in America. It's, it's hard enough trying to be a full-time umpire in, in most places in the world, but mm -hmm. to do it in America is even more challenging. But well before that, being an actor. So talk about that experience and, and especially, again, doing it in the Mecca, you could argue, of, of mm -hmm. acting, at least in terms of, I would, I would think of stage production, acting, Broadway and all that. Some people might yeah. say Hollywood, but for a lot of people, New York is, is where you go if you want to be an actor, especially on the stage. So take us through that part of your journey, what you were doing before you got into cricket full time. Well, that, that comes from also a reaction to sports. Um, so like I said, I, I told the story a bit earlier about uh, joining the lacrosse team at my getting recruited to join the lacrosse team at my college and then not liking any of the people who also participated on that team. Well, I, I, gotta, I gotta break in here too. First yeah. to say, now you said it, you got to campus the first day and they tried to bring the, uh, the beer uh, keg and just mm -hmm. connect the hose to your mouth and just uh, funnel it straight in. And you were taken aback by this. Uh, this is mm -hmm. what you were saying. What were your high school across teammates doing that they weren't trying to do this to you? Why did, how come it took until your first day of college for this mm -hmm. to happen? I think basically in high school, I got away with it. I'd been a weird kid for a long time. And so I had grown up through, from third grade, we played lacrosse with basically the same group of guys from the time we were in third grade till we were in eighth grade. We won a couple of state championships in our sixth grade year. And in our eighth grade year, we won club championships for Abington Lacrosse Club. And then a bunch of our guys that we played club with got sent off, basically got recruited out to Catholic schools and private schools around the Philadelphia area. And those that stayed in public school, you know, we sort of made the team what we could, but our, our high school team was certainly not as good as our, as our club team was. But basically I'd been a weird enough kid for long enough I have undiagnosed ADHD for 35 years now. So we're working on, again, sort of finding calm, finding center, finding more of what interests me. But I think that in high school, 
I didn't get invited to the parties because they knew I wasn't going to come, but I had from, but nobody was drinking in third grade. So I basically worked up enough good. Nobody that you know of. Nobody that I know of. Nobody that I know of. Um, I certainly know that there were parties happening in seventh grade. Uh, Sean Evans, who sat next to me in seventh grade math, I used to watch him every other day or so drop tabs of acid in math class in seventh grade. So this is the, and oh, and he, he played on the lacrosse team with me. So this, now, is this the, the same as Sean Evans that hosts Hot Ones on uh, First We Feast or no? I do not know if it is the same. I'm sure there's lots of Sean Evans out there. I don't think that that's him. If it is, then hi, Sean. And I have stumbled into a corner of sports that I didn't even know about. <laughs> Hot Ones, it's, it's the show. It's, they, he does. Honestly, uh, no. Oh, the wing show, the wing show. The wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I've seen that guy. I don't think that it's uh, Sean Evans who dropped tabs of acid in seventh Unless grade. Unless he's gone classes. through a heavy amount of plastic surgery that you're not aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I'm not aware of. <laughs> so, yeah. So you, was I talking about? You, you go through this lacrosse right. and you weren't quite, you were a bit of an outsider, essentially, mm-hmm. when you're getting in. Yeah. And that you say that essentially you got to college. Product yeah, of yeah. what led you into acting because mm-hmm. you weren't really fitting in with lacrosse culture. Yeah, I didn't fit in with lacrosse culture. I didn't fit in with soccer culture. I... I fit in with swimming culture because swimmers are weirdos. Um, so we had a really good time on the swim team. We had chants, we had songs, we had costumes, we had like performances that we did before meets that like the officials and the league like had a really nice time watching. And so we even at like state championships and stuff were able to like perform these skits in front of all these people because we were like the weirdest swim team of the bunch. Um, and that didn't really work when I got to college lacrosse and so I basically didn't know anybody I had no standing in the community there and I showed up and wanted to be my more true more authentic self now that I'm away from my parents now that I'm doing something completely on my own and it just within the first two weeks of trying out for the team and then having the first couple of team meetings I was just like I don't think this is for me so uh i was Honestly, so major. so yeah. you said you went you were in an area of the country in philadelphia where lacrosse was quite big in the high school scene mm-hmm. and you were mm-hmm. recruited and you mm-hmm. say you were recruited were you on a scholarship were there kind of consequences to deciding you didn't want to be part of the lacrosse team anymore in terms of it mm-hmm. affecting any sort of tuition and funding or, or no no this it, it, it was a d3 program i realized early that i wasn't ever gonna be a professional lacrosse player i didn't think I left high school at 6'4", 155 pounds, and that was three years of concentrating, trying to get my weight up. Um, I I, I couldn't put on pounds. I still can't put on those pounds. Um, The only time I've ever gained weight was when I was uh, a drunk uh, in about 20, sort of 14, 15, and had gained the most weight that I've ever had. So it's it's really just the beer that that puts weight on me. Uh, But in high school, I was unable to sort of I knew I was not going to be able to pack on enough pounds and get physically strong enough to play uh, like at a D1 school. And so I was happy to go to York College of Pennsylvania and play a bit of lacrosse and become a history teacher. That was my plan. Um, so, so nobody on the lacrosse team, they didn't, instead of taking the beer pipe on the kick, they didn't, nobody attempted to try and connect a, a pipe with a creatine and whey protein to try and get you to uh, add, add some weight and just connect that to see if your body nah. would up. <laughs> I probably would have needed to take the beers first and then they would have trusted me more and put me on a weight gain program but I didn't make it that far I quit the team the day after uh, they said I was on the team and then 
uh, two days later, I like declared an acting major to become an actor and joined in with the, the weirdos, uh, with the stage crew and with the actors. And so I spent most of my college career working in and then eventually running uh, the stage production and the dramatic teams at my college. So that's how I ended up being an actor in New York City as well. Now you say you go to be uh, one of the weirdos. Mm-hmm. Now I find this a fascinating characterization because in my high school, I've observed this, it's not universal, but in some high schools, the, the people who are the best athletes, they do everything. They're also the best actors. They you know, they get the lead roles in the spring and the and the fall stage productions. They're the best singers. How did they the, have time? They're the homecoming kings, whatever. Like our I think he was homecoming king. It was this guy Eddie Egan who was he he played, he was Iron Man on the football team. He was a running back and he played linebacker or safety I think on the football team. Mm-hmm. And um he I forget what his winter sport. I think he ran track. I think he ran indoor track and outdoor track. He was uh, like, he ran middle distance, 400 meters and 800 mm-hmm. meters, I think. But he was, he was an incredible athlete. But then he was also like uh, Pirates of Penzance. He was like in a lead role on the, on the stage production, like in the spring play. And then in, I think it was Oliver. Again, he was uh, one of the lead roles. Who's the bad guy? In Oliver? Oliver. I couldn't tell you. Come on, I've, it's, it's, uh, been, it's I, been blacked out. I was never a good musical theater kid. That's the thing is the musical theater kids like bullied me as well because I had spent my whole childhood doing sports. So when I got to high school and wanted to do shows, I didn't know anything about shows. So I was sort of starting raw there and didn't know anything. So sort of made friends there. It was a lot easier to hop into that in college than it was in, uh, in high school, I think. Maybe my high school was just a lot more stratified than yours. The Artful Dodger. <laughs> I just looked it up. The Artful Dodger. So the Artful Dodger. He's got Mr. Bumble and the Artful Dodger. Mm-hmm. Eddie Egan played the Artful Dodger. I'm, I'm fairly certain. I think he was named most representative Setonian. You know, the the, oh. the the guy who's he does you know does everything in our senior year. Yeah, because hey, this is who everybody wanted to be, and and you know he was <laughs> he was the star on the football team. He got he got the he always got the hottest girls on the football team, and and then he went to the you know on the spring and fall stage productions, and again like we, we were an all boys school. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, you got the sister school, uh, just who, who all the, the female acting roles came from the mm-hmm. sister school. So, and again, he was always with the hottest girls on the stage production. And it was like, this guy, this guy gets everything. Like you can't escape. What is it? What the hell is going on here? Is there anything that he can't do? He's, he's probably, we never saw him, but he was probably the best dancer as well. So was that, you're saying that that wasn't quite you, you're doing a lot of athletic stuff to a high degree and you're also acting. Would you, wasn't would... quite me yeah I think maybe our like I said I think maybe our high school was a bit more stratified I had what did I have about 700 kids in my graduating class and that was every year you know and my my brother's class four years later was even bigger my parents when they graduated from the same high school had more than a thousand kids in their class so we had we had lots of cliques we had lots of groups we had lots of kids who you wouldn't see for months at a time and then they would show back up and stuff like that so it was a very large public high school just outside of Philadelphia we were we're sort of the first township outside of the city limits so half of the township there's a very wealthy part of the township there's a big hospital system there um, and there's also you know uh, public housing and sort of urban flow out of the city into the suburbs a bit later and then there's a band of middle class Irish kids in the middle that's me. 
um, and, you know, throw whatever, 1,200 kids, 1,500 kids in a high school and see what happens. <laughs> so in your eyes, you didn't see acting as like a cool thing that the cool kids do, which is how I envisioned it. I, I was yeah. never in the plays. I was, I thought oh, that's what the cool kids do. I could never be as cool as the, the guys and the girls who were acting in the plays and singing the plays. You're, you felt, you viewed it as this is something that was like counterculture in, in the community that you grew up in. This is how you were getting away from the sports to be a bit different. Well, that's, and, and for me, that's what it was, you know, because I grew up in an athletic household with, you know, my, my grandfather founded or was a, one of the founding members of our local athletic organization, you know, so like I grew up in a very athletic family who wouldn't have thought to put me in a dance class at age four when maybe I would have enjoyed that more. I have no idea. They, you know, the memories have left me or whether or not I asked to do anything else at the time. Um, but I just, I was, I was really pushed uh, sports, 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 until I decided on my own to join uh, the choir in elementary school and the middle school. And I got really good at that and was singing in like select groups and was doing shows and was doing solos in places and was performing out at, you know, events in the community. And so that really took over because uh, I looked at myself as an athletic prospect, basically, as I was leaving high school. And again, we grew up in America. We see as especially boys leave high school, um, if they're going to go on to play sports to any kind of success, uh, then they are enormous. Then they are, you know, they have they have a weight program going for them in high school and people are looking at them maybe, especially in soccer these days, uh, people are looking at kids at age five, six, seven years old and recruiting them through to college. So I sort of suspected at the time that I wasn't going to be a uh, a professional athlete at any point. Um, and so I tried something different. I didn't want to just be a teacher uh, in a public high school in the suburbs where I came from. I wanted to do a different kind of education when I got out of college. So most of the education work I've done is not in schools, but in museums and in educational outreach companies. And I didn't want to just be you know, an actor who does this thing, who just does musicals like everybody else does. So let me go find a weird author try and go to his house, try and meet him, try and, you know, get really into his head and see how that might work in professional acting. And then basically I found my way back to sports because it is what I know. It is, I think, a space where you can improvise a lot more and have a bit more of a chance of success, at least where I've landed. Actors are also terrible people. I'm going to throw a lot of people under the bus maybe today, but uh, yeah, actors and directors and that whole industry as they'll call it, and they'll only refer to it as the industry, and they'll just expect that you know what they're talking about. By the time I got out of college and then did it professionally a little bit and had gotten into the scene, gotten into the industry a little bit, I, I was not getting an agent. I didn't get a big show one summer. And so then I went back to kids. I went back to teaching. I went back to sports. And uh, I've sort of found my way back uh, to there. But yeah, certainly in my high school, the actors, I mean, People came to our shows, people applauded us, you know, we got write-ups in the school newspapers and those sorts of things, but it never felt like I had made an impact, like I had done anything that was more than the sum of the parts of where I'd come from. Sure, I could pick up acting and then my first role is a starring role in a musical and I've never acted before, that's interesting, but there's just 800 people in front of me from Abington High School. I don't care. I don't, I don't really care you know, about those 800 people. These are the same 800 people I see all the time. What is bigger? What is more? What is something different that I can do? Um, rather than just continuing to in, 
like inherit the same spaces uh, that people who look and sound like me and who come from the places I come from have explored before. So yeah, I guess I was a weirdo because I always wanted to do something different. And anytime that I got too comfortable in doing something that was at least in my own brain normal, I stopped and I moved on to the next thing that was a bit weirder. So, cricket. so what you're saying is, you know, you're saying that's cricket now, you're saying that's cricket, but if the 2024 World Cup makes cricket go mainstream in the US, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. when you take the bus out of town and you're going to find <laughs> a new interest. I'm going to get really good at snooker, but you can't even find a table in this country. But anyway, different story for a different time. But I think that, like I mentioned before, sort of heading, hurtling toward 30 sort of put me in a different idea of where I needed to be and what I needed to get up to and how sort of stable I wanted things to be. I've sort of craved a bit more of that than I ever did uh, in the years before. And I lived in Pennsylvania in 2015, 16, because I'd lost my job in New York here. I left New York with the $200 that I had in my pocket and spent a hundred of it on a bicycle because I was the only way to get around that town when I didn't have a car. Um, I came back then afterward and pretty much since I've come back, I've pretty much just said, forget about it. I'm going to do what makes You're me happy. You're in New York happy. now, forget yeah, about exactly. it. Forget about it. Forget exactly. about it. Do what makes me happy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to sports. I'm going to try something different. Um, I'm going to try and work a full-time job while I'm getting back into cricket which is not smart because I can't, I can't do both. Again, the ADHD, I hyperfixate on one thing for a long time, but. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. So you, you said you had a lead role in, in the high school musical, mm-hmm. your first time out. Mm-hmm. What was it first off? Scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. I got to fall all over the place and use my gangly arms to be very silly and fall all over people and sing silly songs. It was great. Going from that to what you experienced in New York City, Mm -hmm. what was the biggest difference in that experience that I guess made you become disillusioned to the extent that you began to search for something else? I think, and this happens in a lot of industries, it certainly happens um, in cricket, but the sort of unmeritocratic way that a lot of things are done in acting. I auditioned for plays where they told me, you are great for this part, but you're just two inches too tall. And I'm like, okay, either you're lying to me and just trying to make me feel better, or there's something really broken about your system. I tried the system of getting an agent in acting and getting into the unions in acting is the sort of hardest thing you'll do. And I wasn't able to push through that process while also making enough money to continue to live in New York City. And so, yeah. I got, I got out of that. I got disillusioned by the people. I got disillusioned by the business a little bit. I don't know if you ever listened to the Sopranos podcast, Talking Sopranos, Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharippa, but they talk about the industry. A lot, you know, they go through each episode of the podcast is an episode of the Sopranos, but those episodes can run two and a half, three hours in a large portion of the episodes. They'll start off with interviewing somebody who is a fellow cast member. And it's usually somebody who may have been a minor supporting actor. And I, to me, the most fascinating people they interview are not the big stars, not the Edie Falcos, not Carmela Soprano, Agreed, not yeah. Lorraine Bracco. It's somebody who might have only been in five episodes or somebody who's a part of the production behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite episode is with this guy, Martin Bruce Lee. I forget what his exact title is, but essentially he was involved in helping to pick the music that was used in each episode. And he talks through, through the process of how to secure the rights 
and going through the copyrights and all the different layers that you need to speak to in the red tape to mm-hmm. go through the agents and then the artists themselves and whether or not they'll give permission to use their work in the show. Because some of them might think, I don't want my music associated with violence. And if mm-hmm. my music is set to the to the background of somebody who's getting whacked in a scene, like I don't want people associating my music with that becoming like an adult <laughs> image. Um, so they might just say no. Others, it's a very straightforward thing. They, they're jumping out of the seat. Of course, I want to be have my song as a, a background track in The Sopranos of an episode. But a large part of Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharipa, they go on and on multiple episodes. And when they have a lot of their guests on, they talk about it. One of the things they talk about, it was so hard. People think they take it for granted. All oh, these guys made it to the Sopranos, they're big shots. Like, it must have been so easy for them and blah, 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 blah. But they were 20 plus years into their careers before they mm-hmm. got a shot. And they said the 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 first 10 years were the hardest because just to be able to get like a paid role and to get noticed, the biggest obstacle for them was getting a SAG card. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have a SAG card, nobody will even pick up the phone and answer them. There's no respect. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. it's a chicken for the versus the egg thing. How do you get exactly. how do you get a role if you don't get a SAG card? And you can only get a SAG card if you got landed a role. And the SAG card itself, when they first got into the industry in the 80s and early 90s, it might have been $100 and now a SAG card. Just, just to have a membership card so you can theoretically be eligible and mm-hmm. invited to audition. A SAG card, I think they're saying now in the 2020s, a SAG card is over $1,000. And yeah. you know what struggling actor has the pocket money to pay for a SAG card? That's like, that's going to be their rent or half their rent or you know depending on where they're living and what they're sharing in an apartment with and how many other struggling actors and how many shifts in the job that they're currently doing to try and support themselves because they're not getting any acting roles that that's that's going to cost the card and and you know will a producer or a director actually be generous enough to actually front the cost mm-hmm. for the sag card because they've made it and so a thousand dollars that's like a drop in the bucket then doesn't mean anything whereas a thousand dollars for a struggling actor is like everything like oh my god this I just paid for my SAG card and like now I've got a chance in this industry. That's mainly for movies. Mm-hmm. You encountering encountering the same issue from that same point in terms of stage production work where you, you needed this sort of membership card to really get genuine respect and a second look when you went to audition for various roles. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's exactly how uh, it works is that there's lots of non-union, you know, non, non-card needed uh, shows happening, but they don't pay as much because they aren't regulated by the union. So they don't have sort of fixed prices for uh, for your time. They also aren't as safe. The crews aren't paid as well because they're also non-union. So like I have three off-Broadway credits to my name, but those are all in non-union productions. You know, it was an independent company that was able to buy the theater, that was able to have the space, that was able to put on a show on the cheap with non-union actors. Basically, we would do six or eight weeks of rehearsals for free and then do a run of the show for a month or something like that and then hope to get paid from the profits of that show, which then when you start your work, you might spend every day rehearsing for a month or two, right, before you see a paycheck. You might even go that month or two and then do a run of the show before you see a paycheck. And what actor can spend eight, 10 hours a day rehearsing without getting paid for that time? And what, has, what, what is supremely ironic is that, I'm, we'll get to it later, of course, is that that's the exact same situation I'm in now with cricket, is that I'm getting to that point where I'm right on the edge of being able to make this a full-time job. And there's lots of players and coaches who are in the same place that I am. 
but then we have to pay $500 just of our own money to fly somewhere because that money, that's not paid for. So sure, I'm going to make $800 when I get to Texas, but not if one of the games is canceled, then I'll get less. Um, and I've had to pay my own way to get there. Um, hotels and things are paid for, all that kind of stuff, just like on a set of a play, right? When you're there, when you're in person, it's happening. It's around you. It's, you know, it's provided for you. But anytime you're outside of that, anytime you're running lines on your own in your own house, uh, any money that you have to spend on outfits for your auditions, because you need different outfits for all your different auditions, and you need to be able to memorize a bunch of different monologues that you can take and use at any time, all of that is unpaid labor. And so it became too hard to sustain that and trying to work a part-time job in a museum, teaching kids, and then trying to act in the evenings just wasn't going to work in New York. Because in New York, there's a million people fighting for your spot in everything. There are, you know, 800 other guys who are exactly my size, who wear the same glasses, who have the same beard, and who went to Juilliard. And I went to York College of Pennsylvania and wasn't able to break through enough to get through to the next level. So obviously it's a bit different in cricket. I'm, I stand out a bit more on the field uh, in cricket than I ever did in the acting field, but it's hard. It's hard to try and work a job at the same time as you're also pursuing your passion. I don't really have to say this to you. I don't mean to mansplain this to you, Peter, because I know you understand what it's like to get paid like a freelancer and also try and live and work and do overnight shifts at the grocery store or what am I doing these days? I'm sweeping floors at a church in Brooklyn for my temp job these days to try and make up money. So yeah, what we have to do to do this. A lot of people would not be aware of yeah the struggle that you're talking about right now, that this is what it takes sometimes to try and bridge that gap where you're kind of on the fringe. Mm -hmm. I got to take this to, to something full time or am I going to have to give it all up to go to something else. And yeah, I, I definitely was in the same boat where when I was first getting involved in, in cricket writing, I worked as a substitute teacher. I made sometimes, depending on if it was a public school or if it was a private school, I might get $90 a day mm -hmm. or I might get $110 a day. Mm -hmm. And you got called at 7 a.m. the morning of. Oh, they called you late. To, to I love tell those me. calls at 5.30. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, you know, someone was called out sick today. Are you free? Do, do you want to come in? Yeah, you, you might. Yeah, it was usually sometime between 6, 6 and 7 a.m. So it was, you know, you can't be out partying the night before. Or, you know, not that I was a party to begin with. I was, I've always been a pretty boring guy, uh, which might disappoint a lot of people and might surprise some people. But weirdos. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm another weirdo. Uh, but yeah, it was a case of like, I can't stay up past midnight to watch the 10 p.m. West Coast game time start because if I wait until the game ends at 1 or 2 a.m., I might sleep through the phone call at 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. on me. I've got a $110 substitute teaching gig, mm -hmm. which I'm counting on because at most I might get three of those phone calls a week and I don't have any other job because it's 2009 and it's the global financial crisis and full swing and the star ledger just laid off 250 employees because the journalism industry is going into the tank and my journalism degree my bachelor's degree in journalism is now looking very very useless 
And, and you're competing against, you know, people who are coming out of the Columbia Journalism program with a master's degree at the same time, who also didn't have jobs at the time. <laughs> or Syracuse or Missouri yeah, or, or Arizona. <laughs> I, graduated, that's, I graduated college in 2009 and my graduation speaker was the president of M&T Bank. They canceled because they thought they would get such a bad reception at, at our graduation that they, because they were the president of a bank during two, 2009, uh, during 2009, during the recession. So they canceled. And we basically just got a speech from our own college president that said, good luck out there. If you dream it, you can be it. <laughs> Still working on that. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I did that. I mean, I did babysitting. That was another thing, uh, mm -hmm. family, friends, uh, if they were out of town on vacation and they needed somebody to look after their teenage kids to make sure they didn't throw a rager while the parents were out of town and, you know, make sure they got to school on time because they needed to be driven to school because wherever they lived, the school bus didn't go that far. So make some money babysitting and umpiring. That was one of the other things I did. Yeah. Turned to umpiring. And one of the things I discovered, which I'm sure you'll be able to talk a lot about is there's no money playing cricket in America for 99% of the population, but there's nope. certainly money umpiring if, you're interested in that and it's in demand and so yeah i'd get a hundred to 120 dollars a game per game on a on a weekend and then it was like oh well i can make more money umpiring two games a week i can, I can make just as much money umpiring two cricket matches as i can doing two substitute teaching sessions during the exactly. week and maybe i should be thinking more about umpiring instead of playing because you touched on it at the very start uh, it wasn't a very friendly and welcoming environment trying to seek teams out who would let me play to begin with, but mm -hmm. there's always uh, a shortage of umpires. Not everybody wants to umpire in America. Everybody wants to play, but very few people actually want to umpire. And actually there was a need and a desire and people would respond to my emails and phone calls if I offered to umpire. And they mm -hmm. thought um, as little as Americans might know about cricket, at least we can count on Americans to be able to count to six and uh, the other stuff, if they read the rule book or the law book, the law, law book, got to get that right, Brian. Uh, we can on. talk about the intricate differences <laughs> between the law and the conditions and the rules. We can do that at some point. But, you know, yeah. Uh, so there's there's all, you know, I completely identify with, with your journey and, you know, the different challenges that that poses. And the fact that, like you said, you know, you, you did touch on it a little bit when you start started to get into cricket. You didn't start off umpiring immediately. Mm -mm. Okay. But the money that's involved in umpiring, I'm assuming it helped take you in that direction because absolutely, as we talked about the playing experiences, it's not at times the most friendly and welcoming and hospitable atmosphere. So mm -hmm. somehow though, th through those rough initiation sessions playing, you were not alienated completely from cricket. You stuck around. So, so tell me about, yeah, your formative experiences full stop playing or otherwise and what that was like trying to show the eagerness that you did want to participate in the sport and still have that combativeness coming against you where it was uh, a challenge to be committed in a place where people might necessarily not want you around mm -hmm. well it was like I said when I when I was in the tape ball league in New Jersey it, I, I did feel a bit alienated but I think this is a good place to talk about basically my privilege. Um, like I, I, I am a birthright citizen of this country, which means that I can, I can work anywhere. I don't have to uh, sort of go through a visa process in order just to take another job. So I can work as a freelancer and I'm not going to get 
sent home. And I understand that as a white guy walking into a predominantly not white sport in this country, that I'm not necessarily in my place or in the place that I'm expected to be. And I, I took that really seriously, even from the beginning, because, uh, you know, ha having studied the history of colonialism and post-colonialism and what it is, uh, you know, sort of what has come out of these places in the British Empire that are then dumping their cricketers in New York these days is is a sense that we white Americans sort of have control over everything already. And so I wanted to be able to show eagerness to play the sport and to learn the sport, but without knocking the doors down or knocking anybody out of the way to get there, without using my privilege um, to gain anything from cricket, because it really isn't my place, really. I mean, this is a game that is mostly played by expats. And while they are trying to grow the game a little bit more out into the American population that is already here and not just sort of coming in and then having their own first and second generation children is that I'm very, I'm very, I, I try to be very deft with that because I understand that to just walk in and be the most brash guy in the room, which I did when I played Gaelic football and when I played Australian rules football and when I jumped into acting because I, I felt like I could do that. But in cricket, I've almost had to take a step back. And it's part of what we were talking about earlier. And it's part about getting a little bit older. And you talked about, oh, in six years when cricket becomes mainstream, I'll leave. I don't think so. Because I've sort of come to a place in my life where I've slowed down a little bit more. And I'm trying to find the thing that is going to keep me in for a while. I've been waiting for that thing to come. And cricket is really it. And cricket kind of called to me. You know, I watched it on TV. I, I, I went to a few games in New York. I played this tape ball cricket and I said, I can't get enough. So luckily enough, I joined the Columbia Cricket Club because they were the only one with a website. Um, big shout out on, on day one to Sumantro Das and to Ganesh Ramanathan from Columbia Cricket Club. I walked into my first net session with nothing, knowing nothing, having never touched a red cricket ball before. I walked into my first net session with, with the Columbia Cricket Club and they said hi and were kind and showed me things and uh, were able to include me in a way where I didn't feel like I was taking over somebody else's space, which I had felt like in that tape ball league in New Jersey. Um, I walked into Columbia and they were excited to see me. It maybe helped that there were also there was also a Kiwi there. There was also an Australian guy there um, who I could connect with a little bit more about rugby and about Aussie rules and stuff like that, um, as 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 well as learning the ins and outs of cricket. But I really all credit uh, to Sumo and Ganesh uh, as well as uh, Sulavai George at the Columbia Cricket Club, who really took me in in the first year, realized that I had no experience, but realized that I was an athlete and that I was interested. And they put me in a position to succeed. That position, of course, was being a wicketkeeper because I couldn't bowl and I couldn't bat and I was a soccer keeper. So they said, you can move laterally and catch things. Do that. So I showed up to my first game. I didn't know what inners were. So they just handed me a pair of old woodworm black keeping gloves and a pair of crappy old pads that barely stayed on my legs, which you've seen me. I'm tall and skinny. My legs are about that big. And I broke a finger in my very, this one still looks like that. It's still fat like that. Cause again, haven't had health insurance in that long. So that, you know, I broke my finger on my first game and said, what are we doing tomorrow? 
call me. I'll be back. Like I was hooked. It was absolutely hooked. So a huge shout out to those guys and to Columbia and I guess then to the league, to, to the Commonwealth Cricket League in New York City. Leslie Lowe, the director of that. We, we, we are sad. Leslie is very sick right now. I'm very sad to hear that for, uh, for a couple of years. And I hope that he's improving and has family around him that's helping him with that. But it was a great way to get into the sport. We played on a Saturday. There weren't even official umpires for like the first 20 games of cricket that I played. We literally umpired each other. And so at some point they said, go stand at Brian. Can you do square leg after you get out? I don't know what square leg is. And I don't know what those words mean. Square leg, my leg is a, is a straight line. I didn't know that they could be square. So I was like, okay, what do I do? And then nobody at Columbia Cricket Club could teach me the laws. Nobody knew how to explain the best way to understand the laws of the game and understand how those laws affected how the game was played. To me, football, soccer, you throw a ball on a pitch and 22 kids can run at it and try and kick it into a goal, right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty easy thing that even a six-year-old can understand. But as a 24-year-old, 25-year-old walking into cricket, I needed the book. I'm a historian. I've got a library full of books that are 800 pages thick that I had to read in a week during my history class. So the first time I found one of these, Tom Smith's Guide to Umpiring and Scoring, I was hooked. Give me a big fat book to read that'll explain the laws to me. Um, and I did it myself. I went online. I found as many uh, resources as I could to try and learn how to become an umpire uh, because I wanted to learn how the game was played. There were parts of the game that I just couldn't understand. The ball went that way. And by the time I turned around, the umpire was making a signal that I had never seen before. And I just was like, I don't know what to do. I'm the wicket keeper. I'm I had the ball almost every single play of the game. I should know a little bit more about what the hell I'm doing out here. And that was hard for people to teach me. So I just went out and learned it myself. I took an online umpiring course through Cricket Australia, um, where I got a level one certification, I think in 2016 for the first time. Um, where And I was umpiring already starting in 2014 in the Commonwealth Cricket League without having done anything but read through the law book online and tried to watch enough videos to understand what the heck was going on out there. So Columbia cricket, not knowing the rules, trying to find my own way in the sport. Um, I became really charmed by the laws and by the, like I said earlier, the history of the game and how the game has evolved. And the fact that there are different formats to the game. All right, on Saturday, we're gonna play for four hours. And on Sunday, we're gonna play for seven hours. How are those games different? Why is the ball different? Why are the conditions different? There's guys who use different bats for different formats of the game. What the heck is that? Why the heck would you do that? I have no answers to any of these questions. And so I just, I just dug in. I just hyperfixated. I bought all the books I could. Part of my formative experience here, right early on, I had started as you know playing Columbia in 2014 after I'd played in 2013 in that tape ball league. And one of the first celebrities I met in cricket was Steve Buckner, because Steve Buckner is still an umpire in New York City. He lives in the Bronx or Mount Vernon in New York, and he's still an umpire. And he wanders around Van Cortland Park in the Bronx on a Saturday and a Sunday, and people take pictures with him. Who is this guy? What is he doing here? I, you know, I can barely understand what he's saying. He's moving at two miles an hour. This is the most famous umpire. That's hilarious. That's this seems like a this seems like a job for me. You'll see my 
sort of crickety background here. Um, I have a picture of Steve up there that I've had since about that time in 2014, but I keep it up there because when I have umpire meetings like this, sometimes he's in them and I don't want him to see his own picture in my background. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. What you're saying is, I mean, 100% true. People may may not believe this if they're not in and around the New York City cricket scene, but I've seen Steve Buckner at Van Cortlandt Park, just like you said, in the Bronx, Van Cortlandt Park, for people who are not aware, it's the biggest cricket facility in New York City. It may even be the biggest cricket facility in America. It's got nine, it used to have 13 cricket fields yeah. all on one site and then down. about 10 years or so ago they went through a large scale renovation to the park where they tried to make the fields a bit nicer but in the process of making the fields nicer they had to shrink the space in mm-hmm. order to focus the, mm-hmm. the renovations to Im- improve the remaining fields so i think it went from 13 to 9 mm-hmm. in terms of Cricket fields now. Van Cortlandt Park is a huge park. You've got a golf course. You've got horse riding stables. There's, there's when you play at Van Cortlandt Park and you get an unfiring assignment. There's the Van Cortlandt Stables Ground, and then there's VCP one, VCP three, mm. VCP five. So if you're at the Stables Ground, it's, it's by horse stables. There's an actual horse stables that you got to go a bit further. Beautiful, beyond. love that ground. So normal. It's a very nice ground. Absolutely. You've got golf course. You've got baseball fields. You've got soccer fields that are near the cricket fields. It's a huge park in the Bronx and. They've had cricket there for God knows how long. You you could tell me. You I'm sure you know. Hundred and seventy some years, I think. Uh, At least stables, yeah. The stables there, I think, is only seven ten years younger than Staten Island's ground is. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's three years ago now. I'm not sure that they're playing at stables any year anymore. Three years ago, they built a children's playground on part of that piece of land that that's i terrible. don't know that i love that ground it was so fun it's playing beautiful. there yeah that's where i got arrested yeah it's oh that's well we'll get to the rest story in a bit but yeah, yeah. the stables ground i think what is it like 224 or 244 what, yeah it's up it's the uh, stables is up like 260 some van Cortland is at 244 and yeah, then yeah, stables okay. is about 260 stables is 20 bucks yeah it's yeah 20 bucks or so further north but yeah steve, steve buckner during a set of usa cricket trials that were held in our ICC America's trials in 2016. Mm-hmm. Steve Buckner and, and I think 2018 too, I can't remember. But yeah, Steve Buckner is just wandering around umpiring some other matches that were taking mm-hmm. place. And I believe he's, and you, you confirm this, I believe he he does uh, NYPSAL umpiring. He does, as well. yeah. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of umpiring in the city, whether it's PSAL or the Commonwealth League or other leagues. He's, yeah, mm-hmm. you've got this guy who's stood in World Cup finals and God knows how many test matches and internationals and he's just he's just around of, just around new york cricket community now he's so like you said he lives in lives in the bronx lives in mount vernon um and it's for so for him to come to van Cortlandt park it's a very short journey for him to come yeah. and i believe the reason why he's there is he's, he's got family his sister 
or somebody else who's a family relative who's had been yeah. a longtime resident in New York. And so mm -hmm. when he retired from being uh, on the circuit in the ICC circuit, instead of staying in Jamaica, he came to New York to be with his relatives and family in, in New York City. So that's why he's there. Um, but still, yeah, he still referees high school soccer games, too. There you go. I, I, I don't know how he moves up and down the field, uh, but <laughs> like he's he's incredible. I did seven or eight games with him last year on the Randall's Island pitch uh, between Manhattan and Queens, which is oh, a great yeah. little pitch. Right there. Um, it's, and you, it's, a, it's a beautiful, it's, well, the, the view, you've got the bridge kind of overhanging one, one side of the ground, mm -hmm. and then you've got some incredible facilities for soccer and for rugby and for other stuff on Randall's Island. It's a, it's a huge, again, sports complex. And then the cricket field, it almost feels misplaced because you've got so many other brilliantly maintained facilities there. And the cricket one is kind of probably the least well-maintained, but it's still there. And you've got this, you go over what used to be the Triborough Bridge. What are they? Mm -hmm. It's the RFK Bridge. RFK, yeah. yeah. And um, that's how you get onto Randall's Island. And so you, you pass Icon mm -hmm. uh, Stadium, the track complex, and this incredible area for all these different sports, cricket is a part of it. And yeah, it's a part of it. You can see Steve Buckner. You can see Brian Kane and Steve Buckner. But Steve Me Buckner, and Steve Buckner take the bus in together, you know, because neither of us can afford cars. We both take the bus in from Manhattan at the same time to make sure we get to the game on time. But <laughs> he's good, there. It's a good I mean, one. He's there. It's incredible. Believe it or not, he's there. So uh, cricket in America, you've experienced that. I've experienced it it'll throw up some surprising names in places where yeah. you might least expect it. And there's no element of being too big or too proud to umpire in local cricket. You mm -hmm. talk to Steve Buckner and, and you ask him, why are you umpiring at Magic Series? Because I want to earn $120. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, That'll be me also at 80. What a stupid question. Too. Why yeah. are you, why, <laughs> why wouldn't I umpire? <laughs> like, oh, but you're a test umpire. Yeah. And guess what? I'm not a test umpire anymore. So I need to continue earning money. This is yeah. how I'm earning money. Like, what did you expect me to do? That's his very matter of fact answer if you ask him. And yeah, so he's, you know, in his 70s now, I believe, but yeah. he's uh, still very active and engaged in terms of umpiring locally and mm -hmm. and you've been a part of that firsthand alongside him standing in matches so so tell us about that the fact that here you are you've only been introduced into the umpiring aspects of cricket basically mm -hmm. since 2014-2015 and mm -hmm. he talked about doing the online cricket australia course to to get certified through cricket australia and you, you've also done looking at your linkedin profile you've, you've done west indies cricket umpires association exam there's a USA Cricket Umpires Association that, believe it or not, again, for people who might not be aware, there is a, indeed a USA Cricket Umpires Association, there USA is. CUA. It's been around for a very long time. And so they have their set of courses and way that they certify mm -hmm. umpires that are at, all around America. They're the ones who have been doing that for a long time. But now USA Cricket has their own umpiring course. You've, you've also done an ECB accreditation course so mm -hmm. for somebody who only really got involved eight years ago in terms of the umpiring scene and as somebody who didn't grow up around cricket to now in less than a decade being able to stand with somebody who's a legend of umpiring circles around the world in international cricket Steve Buckner what is that experience like for you it's incredibly bizarre to find that each step is slightly more complicated and slightly more convoluted than the step before it. So becoming an umpire in the Commonwealth Cricket League is easy. 
you tell Leslie that you want to be an umpire and he goes, oh, thank you. Please, we need help. <laughs> and he sticks you on a field two days later, even though he's never asked you if you've ever read the rules. Doesn't matter. Doesn't yeah. matter to him. Just, just, just do it. And that's it's also part of why I started uh, umpiring as well, because cricket equipment is expensive, and I needed to play on. I needed to umpire on Sundays so that I could play for my team on. So I could afford to play for my team on Saturdays and hold down a job the rest of the week. You know. Well, well I got <laughs> just got in here quick. The full season I did, the first full season I did umpiring in the cricket league of New Jersey. I, I was astounded because, again, I had this vision in my head. You see these officials in the NFL, NHL, MLB, very, very rigorous process, lots of training, years of training. you got to start a you know, high school football, high school umpiring, work your way to college, and then just like, just like the players, you got to start mm -hmm. at high school officiating, then college officiating. If you are observed to be performing well enough and diligent enough and competent enough, then you may get opportunities to be an official at the professional level, mm -hmm. professional leagues. So I'm in my head, I'm thinking, oh, I got to take this very seriously. And uh, CLNJ, there was a pre-season umpiring certification course. And mm -hmm. the email said, mandatory, in order to umpire games in this league, mandatory, you must attend this umpire's training session or else you will not be able to be scheduled for games. And I missed it. I forget what happened if I was overseas covering um, an event that USA was participating in or if I was sick. Something happened that came up and I was not able to attend the one mandatory date that said you have to attend and i emailed the the person in charge of umpire uh, coordinators and umpiring assignments and i said i'm i'm really really sorry i can't believe i missed this um but i'm desperate to umpire like is there any way i can take a makeup course and um still be able to officiate because i really would like to umpire this year and he was just like oh we're short of umpires so like you can do this game start <laughs> off boom like yeah he started me in so at the time there was three divisions it was division a b and c but he started me in division c just mm -hmm. to get my feet wet but within i think three weeks by week three i was umpiring division a a because the standard of umpiring was so poor that i shut up immediately into the a division i was in demand like word spread quickly not not to like big myself over sound arrogant but like just doing the basics just showing basic competency is something that is severely lacking in a lot of the local league umpiring. So if you yeah. if you can do the fundamentals and just be basic and disciplined in giving signals, you know, it, some some of the teams would be impressed that like I, I knew the difference between a leg by and a by and when to signal leg by and when to signal by. And subtle things like that, you think like that's not a big deal, but like, you know, the other umpires don't do that. You know, some umpires they just they just never signal it by. So they just everything is a run comes mm -hmm. off the pads if it comes if it goes by the keeper you don't put bat on it they never signal so literally every run scored in the game is a run unless it's a wide or no ball and the fact that i was signaling leg buys when it came off the pads instead of the bat like oh my god this this guy actually takes umpiring seriously like we can't let him flounder in the c division like boom we, we got to get him umpiring a division games immediately That's and in my first happens. my first year of umpiring I was doing playoff games i didn't do the league final you know they, they were very good umpires and this mm -hmm. is in quickly new jersey who can consistently are graded and, and they get selected to do the final, but I was doing playoff games in my first year, which to me was like, it was confusing. Like, am I actually that good? Or is the umpiring that bad that I'm actually in demand to do playoff games in my very first year? Um, so, so, so yeah, some of the things you're talking about there, getting involved in the Commonwealth league, it wasn't like you had to go through this massive certification process, just the, the standard and, and the desire for quality umpiring is so low that mm -hmm. there actually is an opportunity there for somebody like you to shoot up very, very quickly. If you show a strong appreciation for the laws and applying them correctly, 
Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, just tell, tell I'm curious to hear more about that going from, again, it, it's almost, to me, it sounds like it's a very, it's the polar opposite from your acting experience mm-hmm. where you were, had all this training and didn't really have anywhere to put it to use. And in cricket, at least at a superficial level, you don't have the experience, but mm-hmm. just simple supply and demand, you, you get an opportunity, you get your foot in the door. And if you can do it right, you're shooting up pretty damn quick. That's exactly it. And what is... What's wild about how, and you know this, how cricket works in America is that each individual league has its own owner, has its own schedule, fights for their own grounds, and tries to hold on to their little corner of what they have. So I started in the Commonwealth League and then in the World Series League that uh, that, that Columbia also plays in. Some of the old-time clubs still play in that league. And I was basically kept to that. I did a little bit of the New York Bangladesh League. Basically, the man who assigned those leagues knew who I was. Uh, Him and Leslie were friends. I captained a CCL team at some point in like an anniversary match. So I was getting friendly with these guys and they were putting me everywhere that I wanted to be. My only goal was to make enough money on the Sunday that I could continue to play for and then eventually be a captain of my team on on, on the Saturday and then also board meetings on Wednesday nights and that sort of thing. So I was getting really involved and I needed the money to keep up playing. But I found out later, so you you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that the, that the USACUA, the Cricket Umpires Association, has been around since the mid-90s or something. I didn't know that for four years, five years of umpiring because my leagues that I was in didn't tell me that. I literally asked. Where can I get certified in the U.S.? Oh, don't worry about that, Brian. They don't need, you know, you don't need to do any of that. Just come out, do these games. They don't really have any of those. They don't really have them. Okay, I'll go online. I'll find some stuff here. I'll buy a book. I'll learn on my own. And then a couple of years later, I guess they got themselves a website for the first time where they got a better search engine optimization on their website. And I was Googling around for the 1,000th time and found the USACUA. Sent an email, didn't hear back the first year, didn't hear back the second year, finally yelled loud enough at the right people for long enough to be like, can I please get the number for somebody in this organization? Is it real? Will they actually certify me? I know that cricket is growing. I'm watching it happen on my TV that cricket is growing. Where are they getting these umpires from? I finally found it. I didn't join the USACUA till 2019. And within six months of that, have met Danny Khan, And these guys who have run that organization are meeting other umpires who are fully certified through the West Indies, people who have worked in the West Indies at a higher level, not just guys that came from Trinidad and have decided to do a bit of umpiring in their 60s now that they've retired from their construction job. Like those are the guys I was working with. And by the time I joined the USACUA, only in 2019, do I then find that there are people getting higher certified, there is higher level cricket around. And by that time, I'd built up I think enough sort of good nature within the industry that they could, there's that word industry again, that they could reach out to the people, you know, who they knew, who I knew, and I could get vouched for. And I could say, yes, I've done the CCL final twice. And I have been working with uh, Ramesh over in the New York National League as well. And they've got a couple big players that are paid to be there and stuff like that. So I did shoot up very quickly and not to throw any of the other local guys under the bus. That's, this is just what they're doing. This is how they learned what umpires were. And there's a huge difference between, let's say, what, what Steve Buckner would have walked into 
in the early 90s, maybe, or whenever he started, late 80s, early 90s, whenever he started his sort of professional umpiring journey, the way they now teach umpiring is completely different than what he would have walked into. And he is a big part of changing that. He wrote one of the West Indies umpiring guides, a copy that he gave me that is kind of brilliant. And some of the language that he uses is some of the same stuff that you're hearing now in some of these more global and national trainings that I'm doing. So umpiring has changed. Cricket has changed so much, even since the time I started. Most cricket in New York was still played with a red ball and white clothes, no numbers on the shirts. Everybody come with your own jersey, wear your own hat. Doesn't matter what color you're wearing. We're all just cricketers. The umpires are going to wear their big, long butcher coats and have a nice time standing there pointing their finger sometimes. You're not really sure what the laws are because they weren't applied evenly by those guys also. So I think cricket has changed so much in the 10 years that, that I've been part of it. And watching umpiring become more professionalized has really led to me wanting to do it professionally. By the time you are getting asked to do tournaments out of state, by the time you are getting asked to do tournaments where players are getting paid to come from out of state, especially just to play in that tournament, they do expect something more from you. And they don't teach any of that to you necessarily in those classes. The most I've learned about cricketing and umpiring is just from talking nonsense on the field with other umpires. That 20 minute rain delay for a New York National League game that I spent with Steve Buckner is the first 20 minutes of feedback I got in eight years of umpire. Eight years. And the first time I got feedback was because there was a rain delay and Steve decided to tell me how I was doing. And I remembered every, I remembered every piece of it, you know, but now not two years later, I have weekly calls with trainers and higher level umpires in the West Indies. I am constantly in contact with the umpires here in the U.S. who are on a similar circuit to what I'm on. Uh, the sort of minor league sort of batch of umpires is all in a group chat together and we talk a lot. We get regular training now. I'll take a look at my thing here. I think over the last, since 2019, I've done more than 400 hours of training, both of my own accord and then also officially through the USA CUA, through USA Cricket and through Cricket West Indies. So on top of 200 games of cricket, I've done 400 hours of training over the last three years. And so that is a far cry from the umpiring system that I walked into. Um, and I, I think I just put on Twitter today or yesterday that the first batch of level one umpires through USA Cricket has just been baptized, for lack of a better word, uh, given our certificates. And we are the idea now is that we're all part of the same team, is that there is one group who is keeping us together and that we can be regionally and nationally assigned because we all are going to be put on the same continuum, as opposed to the way cricket was, well, still is run, but was mostly run before where it's individual leagues holding on to their individual talent, be that sponsors or players or umpires or whomever. So I've really benefited from finally <laughs> getting in contact with the USA CUA, which the USA CUA is in a strange place right now. We can get into this now if you want that USA cricket has been given the mandate by the ICC to take over 
all of the umpiring across the country. They have been given that mandate and Jamie Lloyd is in charge of that mandate. And I think he has very smartly gone to the USACUA and gone to Danny Kahn and to Jermaine and to some of the other high level umpires and assigners here and said, they've admitted that they don't 100% know how to do that, you know, how to fully take over a whole umpiring program. And so they're using the USACUA and the other regional bodies as partners now. And the idea is that in a few years that will be taken over um, and the USACUA will cease to exist because USA Cricket will be taking over all of those certifications and all of the different programs that they're going to run. So at the moment, we are encouraged to stick with our original organizations like the USACUA or like some of the other regional bodies, um, but with the idea that we will all eventually be folded up into USA Cricket. I think I've gotten lucky here on the tail end of the USACUA's lifetime because I it should happen this year where I will be fully certified uh, to work in the West Indies as a fully certified umpire. So that's, that's adult games, that's games at a higher level, um, even in the West Indies that I should be able to do. And I'm waiting for somebody to invite me down there because there used to be quite a robust exchange program between the US and the West Indies where umpires would go down there and work. I know uh, Jermaine Lindu from Atlanta has gone down there and done the CPL. We've also seen, of course, recently VJ and Samir Bandekar get chosen through the ICC. Um, that's a different level that I'm yet to attain. But again, goals. Those 20, what are they, 2030 Olympics? Looking good. Think I got a spot in those? Hey, don't count yourself out for 2024. You never know. <laughs> There's a lot of questions I have specifically about umpiring and kind of how you fit into that in terms of culturally as somebody, again, born and brought up in the U.S. in an umpiring fraternity that's predominantly West Indian in the U.S., even though the, the playing base at the moment is still, uh, was still, uh, playing base is currently hugely South Asian. Mm -hmm. I've observed that the majority of the umpiring base, at least at the higher levels of American cricket, is actually mostly West Indian uh, based. And so you get the culture clash there. That happens on the field in different ways. You get mm -hmm. teams that are Indian teams, ethnically Indian, Pakistani, like you said, Columbia Cricket Club is a very unique cosmopolitan it club. Is. There, there are very few clubs that are like that. Most of the clubs are very parochial, organized along ethnic lines, where it, I've talked about this in another episode. It's not even good enough to be Indian. You've got to be Tamil. Everybody in the club has got to be Tamil. Or everybody's got to be Punjabi or the West there Indian. There are three separate Bangladeshi leagues that cater to three yeah. completely separate groups of people. They're all Bangladeshis, though. There's three leagues. They compete with each other. I didn't know which one I was going to on Sunday. I honestly, I wore the, I wore the, the uniform from one of them, but then I got there and it was the other one. So and then you've got, so you've got the, yeah, you said New York Bangladeshi League, but you've, you've also got the Kerala League. Kerala mm -hmm. League in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, not, not good enough to be just Indian. Got to be from Kerala. Mm -hmm. Part of the Kerala League, generally speaking. And West Indian clubs, some West Indian clubs are only Jamaican or only Bayesian mm -hmm. or only Guyanese. Or some clubs, it's not even good enough to be from Guyana. You've got to be from Burbese. Yes. Just Guyanese. Yes. Um, so Unless you came from the Melbourne club back home, <laughs> you can't play for the Melbourne club here. Yeah, That's exactly. West Indian Melbourne, not Australian Melbourne. Yeah, it's Melbourne, Jamaica. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all these things happen. Now, in the context of that, what I encountered, and I'm curious what your experience has been like, when I umpired, initially I had this fear of 
will these players respect me? Because again, when I was playing, there was constantly an issue of lack of respect, constantly having to overcome these stereotypes of all oh, this American. He doesn't know how to play cricket. Mm-hmm. You know, can we actually trust him to field in a certain position or bat or bowl, or whatever? And I thought, oh, this is going to be the same old story in umpiring. When my experience was actually quite the opposite. And what I encountered was that when I would umpire a match between, again, two separate groups of Indians, parochial Indians, mm-hmm. or, you know, there would be a Gujarati club and then there would be a, a Tamil club mm-hmm. against each other, a Punjabi club, or there would be an Indian club and a Pakistani club. These clubs were thrilled that I was umpiring because the biggest arguments and fights and sometimes arrests there were matches where police were called to the ground in cricket league new jersey and and i still want to hear the story about you getting arrested at a cricket match but police would be called because in a match between two separate groups of indians in parochial setting there might be an indian umpire who is again perceived to be favoritism towards one side or Mm -hmm. if it's an indian pakistani set of teams and one umpire is indian and the decisions are going against the pakistanis they said a lot of the teams, the feedback I got was, oh, please umpire more matches. We're thrilled that you're umpiring because, A, we, you look like you're competent in terms of the laws, but more importantly, B, you're like Switzerland. You're a genuine neutral umpire. And mm-hmm. so we don't have to worry about, like, he's trying to screw over the Indians or he's trying to screw over the Pakistanis or he's trying to, trying to screw over the Gujaratis or he's trying to screw over the Punjabis. Like, he doesn't have a dog in the fight. He's just there to watch and officiate cricket. And so I, I hear all these stories about ump- uh, umpires, you know, having to – deal with police officers because policemen would be called to the ground. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. is this the same league that I'm officiating? Cause I never had these stories. No, you know, mm-hmm. why, why didn't the police come for my matches? What did I do <laughs> wrong that there was no policeman coming? You know, where are all these fights that are supposed to be? Everybody's so peaceful and gentlemanly and the things that you hear about cricket when I was officiating, what, what are these other things happening where this fights breaking out? I don't get it. So I'm curious from that standpoint for you, similar situation, mm-hmm. White guy, American born and raised, who's officiating in a sport where there's constant battles, often decided along ethnic lines or cultural mm-hmm. lines on a cricket field in America. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction and the level of respect that you got mm-hmm. in terms of the way that players were treating you? A, from a competency level, but B, in terms of a fairness level that allowed you to officiate? Competency uh, grew as I got better. You know, I am sure there are some dodgy LBW calls that I gave in 2015 that players still are pissed about in their, you know, they dream about that day still and wake up in a cold sweat and go, that that American umpire, that son of a gun, he really gave me out. It was going down leg side by a mile. I don't remember. It's gone. But I'm sure I gave you a bad decision sometime in 2015. But also, like, like you said, I have gotten that call. I think the first time I got a league final, I think it was the first time I got a league final. I got a call from the director who said, Brian, I can't put a Guyanese umpire in this game. I just can't do it. There'll be fights. There'll be riots. I can't put a Guyanese umpire in this game. So you're up. And I'm like, okay. So it's, you know, it was a, it was a Guyanese team and a Pakistani team. So it was me and an Indian guy doing the final. I mean, that's just how, I mean, we, they only started doing neutral umpires in test cricket 20 years ago, but it seemed pretty natural here in New York that you need neutral umpires sometime. So competency-wise, it got better as I got better. But being able to explain the laws, really getting into, like I said, being able to read the laws and appreciate them and understand what they're saying and watch enough cricket. Gosh, cricket people are obsessed with watching hours and hours and hours of cricket. And, and I'm in. I got it. I got bitten by that bug. And so... 
competency-wise, yeah, it got better as I went. But respect-wise, um, I think that where I come from, just as a personality, I think I had the right tools already in me to start something like this. So at 14, I the, the first day I could, I signed up to be a soccer referee. And I took soccer refereeing courses for, you know, pretty much through college um, until acting took over my life completely. And I worked my way up that system a little bit too. But when I was 17 years old, I did an adult soccer match between the Danubia Club, a German club in Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia Ukrainian Club, right? Where I am the center referee. I'm 17 years old. These are two teams full of men speaking two different languages that I do not speak and yelling at each other in them and in English. And I really got baptized by fire in the soccer referee scope. I did games like that. I did kids games in Northeast Philly where cops would be called because parents were fighting, um, stuff like that. And also I have been a teacher in a public school and I have been a museum tour guide. And so when I need you just to shut up and move on, I have a voice for that. I have a face for that. I have body actions for that. And so I'm and you're doing it from four. and you're doing it yeah. from six foot four. Exactly. So if I if I point at somebody and tell them, Skipper, control him or we're done for the day, they believe me. And I didn't know how to execute that power. I don't know how we would have been done for the day. But in that moment, you know, you can sort of at least move the game on. And so I have those sort of communication skills as a teacher and as a librarian and as a coach. You know, I've coached middle school basketball. I've coached varsity soccer. I've coached women's Australian football. I've, I was the kicking coach for uh, some rugby players for a minute. That was fun. I never played rugby at that level, but I knew how to kick and nobody on that team did. So we had a good time. So I sort of have sort of some of those skills that I've gained over the years that walking into a position of power, again, a precarious position of power because I'm a white American guy walking into a space that isn't my own. It's a precarious power. And if it's overshared, if it's overwrought, if I'm too yelly, if I'm too shouty, if I'm too demanding in the way that I do things, then you won't get respect. So especially in New York where there are laws and there are playing conditions, and then there is how the game happens, which is a little bit different than either of those things. And if you can figure that out quick enough and understand how to give back to these players, right, while also enforcing the laws, but if you can give back to them, if you can share a joke, or if they ask you a question about the laws, that you're able to answer it quickly and correctly enough that when they look it up later, you're not completely wrong, then you've done well for yourself. And so I've sort of taken those skills into my cricket umpiring. And I think I've, I've made quite a go at it <laughs> at this point. Um, and I think, yeah, those skills definitely help as far as cultural understanding. I also love all the food they make. So, you know, I absolutely, if there is a Jamaican team and a Pakistani team playing on the same day, that means that I have two dinners to bring home, two different flavors that are going to be absolutely spectacular. And the music, the DJs from either team will be competing on who can play either their, you know, Jamaican soca. Is soca Guyanese? I'm going to, oh, I'm going to. Soca, I think soca is more now. Trinidadian. Is uh, soca Trinidadian? Okay. So you've got soca music on one side and you've got Bollywood music on the other side. And the beats are similar, you know, but the languages are a little bit different. And I love it. I'm just, it's, it's such an immersive experience. I also, because I'm an actor, 
I have main character syndrome. And when you're an umpire, you're on TV the whole time. When you're a player, you get out, you got to leave. You're in the I was going to say, you don't get seen uh, that the acting experience, the, the, the theatrical signals that you can make, how much of that has contributed to your training and, and fast-tracking mm-hmm. your training to uh, make sure you get all the signals right and the gesturing of the four. And Have you noticed that I do very, my... Yeah. very dramatic leg bar yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Have you picked up on my very, like, Billy Bowden-like signals as opposed to, you know, Jermaine Lindu is one of the top three umpires in the country. You know, he has done the CPL. He's done international games. He's a really talented umpire, right? When he signals four, he looks out at the score and he goes like this. That's a four. Finishes at his chest the way he's supposed to. I do a four. I'm, ooh, hello. Look, let me just, let me ride this a little bit. This four is going that way. Let me finish it here. Hello, good to see you all. All right, is it a six? It's not a six. It's a six. Absolutely, I do things a little bit differently. Um, I, I used to do, the, I used to that, do a touchdown. I, when I would give a six, I'd, I'd give a, I'd give a, like an NFL official a touchdown, baby. Because <laughs> it's eight, six. Six Same points in NFL, six points in cricket, six, touchdown, baby. That was my six signal when I <laughs> Yeah, I have, certainly, I have certainly gained a bit of flourish um, in my signals because I, I want to have fun out there. You watch umpires be grumpy on the field and players don't respond players are out there trying to be joyful or they're trying to make a bunch of money and either way when they make that bunch of money they'll be joyful about it in the hotel afterward so i try and have fun with it i this is why i i try and keep my twitter profile up i try and talk to guys like you i you know like i want to be a part of this sport i want to be immersed in it i want to put myself out there so that when some kid coming up through Texas, right, is playing youth cricket in Texas right now, and they're doing really well, and they're maybe going to get into an academy team, and the first time they step out onto a senior men's field, right, and I chuck them the ball for their first bowling over, I want them to go, oh yeah, that guy, he's cool, I can do this, that I'm a small part of that, that I'm a part of making them feel comfortable and welcome to the game, that I'm able to communicate the game in such a way that there is no controversy when you walk out of the field. Cricket doesn't need to be controversial, but it's within its DNA. It's within the traditions and culture of the sport that you argue about everything, even though the laws are pretty clear most of the time. One of the things I really like about what you're talking about now, and it's a fairly good segue into my next question or topic, and I see it with guys like Vijaya Malela and Jermaine Lindo to a lesser extent, both of them, but definitely with you, is the fact that umpiring in cricket and in other sports too but especially in cricket and in local cricket in america along the pathways it's almost seen as again you touched on it it's a it's an activity that you do when you're 50 or 60 and you get tired Mm -hmm. of playing or you're no longer good enough to play Mm -hmm. and in a lot of sports in the u.s that's not how it is you do see a lot of young umpires in baseball you see a lot of young officials in the NFL uh, and in basketball. You, you do see plenty of officials as well who've been on the circuit for 20, 25, 30 years. But that's not necessarily the rule. In certain ways, it's the exception to the rule. They do try and funnel a lot of fresh blood in. And I don't really see that a lot in cricket. And I think it's unfortunate because I look around when I travel to events and cover events and arguably the two best umpires I've seen at most of the events that I've covered in recent years, Leslie Reefer Jr. out of the West Indies, who I think mm-hmm. is fantastic. He's the best. And Claire Polisak 
out of Australia who is also fairly young umpire, but has risen up quite quickly and quite dramatically mm-hmm. just because she's that good. And she's younger than me. She's 33 or something. I'm 35. She's 33, I think, right now. Incredible. But you hear so many stories sometimes at professional level, but hell of a lot of times at local level where the complaints are always, oh, this umpire is too old. He can't see. He can't hear. We need to get younger umpires in here. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We need somebody who can actually see, you know, got decent vision and can hear. Their hearing still works. They're not wearing a hearing aid, blah, 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 blah. And yet people don't rectify that complaint because the, the 50, 60, 70-year-old umpires keep getting appointed because there's no desire from younger people to get mm-hmm. involved in umpiring because mm-hmm. they don't see a point to it or there's just the lack of desire lack of interest and there's always such a focus on playing there's not really an encouragement i think that's one of the things that's missing an encouragement and a level of support to really make people want to umpire and see it as a future opportunity or scorekeeping as well one of mm-hmm. the things i get frustrated about scorekeeping when i was growing up going to a baseball game with my dad <clears throat> that was part of learning baseball what and, you do. and yeah. taking in the baseball experience you're you know my dad would show me how to keep score from the time i was six seven eight years old going to first baseball games you don't just sit there and you see kids nowadays they've got like a playstation uh section in like city field where you can take your kids to go play mm-hmm. playstation if they get bored of watching jacob Degrom or max scherzer pitch like no when i was growing up and going to shea stadium or my dad was a yankees fan i was a mets fan my dad was a yankees fan didn't matter yankees game mets games whatever Part of the game experience was you didn't have time to be bored because my dad would say, we're keeping score. This is, you know, forward K is strikeout swinging, backward K mm-hmm. is strikeout looking, F8 is fly out to center field, and, you know, L6 is line out to shortstop, and, you know, this, you know, he would teach me everything. And so I had to be paying attention the entire game. There was no time for me to, to not lose focus. I had to mm-hmm. be engaged the entire time, and that was done through teaching me to keep score. And that was one of the ways... I began to be engaged in cricket initially is wanting to learn to keep score. I would get frustrated. My biggest frustration with cricket was I couldn't understand the scorecard. It's such a basic thing. You go to a baseball game, you understand how to read the scorecard or how play has unfolded over the course of the nine innings and mm-hmm. football and anything else. And cricket, there was so much information on the scorecard. It's loaded with information. I didn't know how to interpret that information. I need to, somebody teach me, please, how to score. I want to score a cricket match because this will help speed up my education. And one of the things I observe lack of interest in scorekeeping in us and a lack of interest in umpiring amongst young people for both of those things and so for the fact that you as a young person and again i use the example of leslie reefer jr and claire polisek they've shot up so quickly because yeah there's there's oftentimes issues with umpires who hang around too long whereas the young umpires and simon toffa was a great example when he was still on the circuit the younger umpires who get involved they're winning all these awards constantly because there is a certain level of fitness and a certain level of conditioning, Certainly. people might not believe that, but it's true. You're standing out in the field for seven, you know, the batting team is only um, batting for three hours and then they come out in the field for three hours. The umpire is the only one who's actually on the field for the entire seven hours, no matter what, if it's a one day match. Two games a day. Yeah. So there's a certain level of fitness required to umpiring and being able to not just be physically fit, but mentally fit and focused and training your mind and all that. In my opinion, it skews, it should skew more towards suiting a younger person to be able to maintain that. And so the fact that you've done that, how much do you feel that has contributed to your ability to accelerate through the pathway quickly to where you're starting to get, like you said, league finals and getting certifications and getting invited to go beyond New York City Mm -hmm. and get invited to some of these T20 private tournaments that have been held around America? 
Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's a huge advantage and it's, it's part of the opportunity that I saw in this sport. Um, I started playing this sport, like I said, in 2013, I was already in my mid twenties. I'd already, you know, been not failed, but I'd been a failed lacrosse player and I played, you know, uh, Australian football semi-professionally played in a couple national championship games and lost both of them played in seven or eight national championship games in Gaelic football as well and lost all those as well. There's never any pay in that game though. It's amateur on purpose from top to bottom, but that's a different, a different cast, a different story, but absolutely. I, I realized early that even in my mid twenties, I mean, having to make a bit of money from cricket in order to play, needing to learn how to score and how to umpire just to be able to understand the game in the way that I wanted to understand the game. I knew that I was getting hooked quickly and I knew that I wanted cricket to be some part of my life. And I have, I've spoken with, uh, with other journalists and I've tried sort of, I've tried to write a lot for myself, but I get really freaked out by the perceived audience of that even though I'd feel like I'd be a great podcast host, but I don't need to be another guy with a podcast. There's too many, just, you know, again, white guys with podcasts, like too many basic bitches, you and me out there doing podcasts. So thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast. But I've, I've explored the journalism side of it and have gotten frustrated even quicker with it. I knew I wasn't going to end up being a paid player anywhere and that wasn't going to be my side. I don't know enough about the game to sort of be a coach. I've been a soccer coach, a basketball coach. I wasn't a very good basketball coach, but uh, I've been a Gaelic football and, and, and Aussie football coach. So, but I don't have the technical skill for that. So let me try this technical skill. I think it's huge. Um, I think m most of the time when I'm out on the field, um, especially in the club level, I'm 30 years younger than the people that I'm working with most often when I'm working here in the city. And that's not to knock those men and women who do that job. They're looking for something different. Maybe they have kids who play. Maybe they've come from a different side of it. You know, they had a whole life of working and raising kids and maybe even moving to this country and stuff like that. And then 20 years later, they pick up umpiring again because they're in their 50s and they don't want to, you know, they're not going to try and play. I made that decision at 26 to sort of become an official rather than to go down a playing or coaching route. And I'm sure that has some of its an advantage. The stamina is certainly a big part of it. There's times where we will do two and three games in a day. Um, last year at the nation's capital T20 tournament, the Unity Cup in DC, there was some rain days. And so we did three games. We did three T20 games in a row where I was on a field doing an inspection of the wet grass at 7.30 a.m. And at 10.30 p.m. when I stepped off the field for the last time that day, I, you know, I, I couldn't do anything but sit down and just be driven back to my hotel. And I, 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 I think that that is kind of a young man's game to be able to do that, not to gender that, a young person's game to be able to do that kind of thing. That isn't to say that there aren't fit people who are much older than me and there are incredibly technically skilled umpires who are much older than me. And I have really enjoyed learning from them, but you're right. I would love to see a whole generation of players look at themselves at 23 and say, is this for me? Is this, is this really what I want to do? Or do I sort of more love watching the IPL and then digging into Jared Kimber's, you know, podcasts and statistics for five hours a week? And, you know, I had a, I had a question about the way that the DRS worked in that 
IPL match versus the way that I saw something happen in a blast game last week over in England. I wonder how they're different or why. And if anybody has that question to themselves while they're, while they're going through their cricket journey, call me because, you know, I, I will set you up with the free MCC first uh, learning experience of the laws, which is great. And so I think it would be huge if we had a lot more umpires coming through at a lot younger of an age. I have a bit of a story about this. When I was 14 years old and I got my very first soccer refereeing license, I was so excited to be out there refereeing soccer games. And it was encouraged. There were flyers put up around the league, you know, at different fields that said, are you interested in becoming an umpire, uh, in, in becoming a referee? Call the, you know, call U.S. soccer at this number and we'll set you up with whatever contacts. I did that at 14 years old because already I was like, well, I need to make a bit of money on the weekend. I'd already been working as a lifeguard and a swim coach over the summer. I might as well make some money while I'm also playing a bit of soccer still. I'm not going to be a first team starter, even at my high school. I know I'm not the best goalkeeper at my high school. Do something else. So I did that. And by my second year of refereeing soccer, I had started a soccer referee training program at my youth club. So I had gone off on my own and gone into, you know, gotten driven into Philadelphia by my father, you know, a neighborhood he didn't want to go to, to drop me off to go to four hours of soccer referee training. Who the hell is going to sit around and do four hours of soccer referee training? Thank you to my dad for driving me there, right? But I then thought it would really behoove our club, a club that he was on the board of and that my grandfather had started, you know, that every single one of our 12-year-old soccer players who are playing travel soccer should be able to referee the eight-year-old soccer game, right? And they should be able to referee the six-year-old soccer game. And I think if somebody in cricket had the power, had the money, had the time, I have the time, I don't have the power or the money, but if somebody wanted to go to, there are, there are 40 teams, 35 teams in PSAL cricket, something like that, right? And five different divisions, six or seven teams in each division. And there's a lot of those kids who will not go on to even play senior men's cricket at a club level, but some of them love to talk about the game. I've ridden the train with them back from Jackson Heights into the city. You know, I have ridden the train with them and they have talked my ear off about how they've change the rules in the IPL every year. And why do they do that? And why are they trying to make the game more interesting? Can it just be this way? How come you can't have two players behind square on the onside? Son, let me tell you a 45 minute story about body line because I've watched the entire TV series about it, right? Like send me these kids, right? Every 14 year old kid who joins a freshman cricket team in New York City you know, should get two hours of umpire training, should get two hours of understanding what are the laws of the game. And as you said, how do you score the game? How do you keep track of the game? How do you talk about the game the way that people who talk about the game professionally talk about it? And I think that if some program like that existed, that, you know, and, and somebody was willing to put up the money to make that happen, that I think that would be incredible. How much do you think the lack of a grassroots culture contributes to this within cricket in America? Because some of the things you're touching on, it's triggered some recollections for me. I mean, growing up, I umpired some Little League baseball games, not many, but I did umpire mm -hmm. a few. And it was, I was in, in my 20s and it was a summer thing and I could umpire because I grew up playing baseball. So I knew all the rules. So I could umpire yeah. a 10 year old game and same thing, you know, 
ice hockey. Ice hockey was the sport I played longest growing up. And all through Pee Wee ice hockey years, who were the referees? The referees, generally speaking, were college hockey players or, or high school seniors, yeah. ice hockey players who would be officiating the uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old games. Very rarely, it, it would happen sometimes, but very rarely did you see two um, uh, two officials, two two referees on the ice, linesman and referee, who were both in like their 50s and 60s. Oftentimes they would pair, they might pair like an experienced referee or linesman mm-hmm. in their 40s or 50s with a high school senior, a college ice hockey player who was looking to make money refereeing games and you could make decent money refereeing games on the weekends. And it was a way to you know stay involved with the game and pay something back to the next generation of kids. But the point is the kids who grew up playing these sports saw this as a, a way to stay involved, but B this is a way to make some good part-time money by doing something in a sport that you already love. And, you know, instead of going to get a job at a movie theater, Mm-hmm. or some other place that's paying minimum wage you could get 40 bucks or 50 bucks a game refereeing a, a, a peewee ice hockey game where you, you could get 40 bucks a game umpiring a little league baseball game for an hour and a half and you know what other what other part-time job are you going to be able to make quick money being on a sports field doing as being part of a sport that you enjoy and i feel like hearing you talk about this with cricket i, I feel like just from from your description it feels to me one of the main issues is the fact that there's such a lack of grassroots cricket culture 100%. in America. That's, you know, you, you're in New York City in the PSL, so you're having these conversations with the kids. So the fact that there is potentially an opportunity for them, if they're around you, they're observing you, they're, they're seeing firsthand in the flesh, oh, here's a young umpire. Maybe there is an opportunity for me to do this instead of going on a cricket playing career to nowhere. Mm-hmm. But in 99% of the rest of the country, that experience is missing where kids don't envision like, oh, if I want to stay involved in cricket and make some money on the weekends that'll help fund my next net session when I want to be playing, I can umpire mm-hmm. a 10-year-old cricket match or I can umpire a 12-year-old cricket match. Why are these high school cricketers and college-age cricketers not umpiring 10-year-old and 12-year-old cricket matches? Because 10-year-old and 12-year-old cricket matches don't exist for them to be able to get paid to umpire those matches. So there's like a structural yep. issue there where it feels like the lack of opportunities for for young people to envision that they can be an umpire starting at a young age doesn't exist because those opportunities to get experience like you were talking about umpiring soccer games as a 14 year old umpiring men's league games as a 17 year old i don't really see those opportunities just from a pure functional basis there's no such thing as a 10 year old cricket match or 12 year old cricket match Mm -hmm. in large parts of the country unless it's like a national tournament or a cca organized thing or a usa cricket or now minor league cricket is trying to organize mm-hmm. these major league cricket ace is trying to organize these inter-academy matches. But again, th- that's not a year round thing that's happening on a week to week, weekend, weekend basis. That's organized around Memorial day weekend or labor day weekend or 4th of July weekend, where the parents have to be able to fly these kids to a specific site for a specific weekend. What do you feel is, I guess, the number one issue holding back kids from envisioning this as, as a, future pathway do you think it is a grassroots issue or is there something else that is contributing to that lack of interest and the lack of just pure envisioning that oh i i can see this in front of me. this is happening and all oh, that mm-hmm. I, I might be able to do this too like brian is it is hard because there aren't those structures they don't grow up seeing those sorts of things like you said i i remember playing soccer when i was young and there would be sometimes you'd get a real old guy who would just trudge his way down the field and then point a direction 
And sometimes you'd get an enthusiastic high schooler, you know, who was out there and maybe wasn't as technically sound, but he could run the whole day. And it was a completely different experience. Um, we don't have that in cricket. And I think that's because of the history of what cricket has been in this country, which is mostly club based, mostly quite scattered in different parts of the country and entirely male. I think that that's a big contributing factor to it. I think that USA soccer got, well, I mean, USA soccer kind of hates that this happened, but I think U.S. soccer got incredibly lucky that their women's team surged forward much quicker than their men's team did. I was inspired much more by Julie Foudy than I ever was by, by Landon Donovan. Like, I, I, I was in six They were winners. Yeah, I'm, I was, I'm, I was, I'm, they won. I remember, I remember watching the 99 uh, World Cup final at the Rose Bowl. I was home on TV, and, like, my oldest brother – I remember he was rushing home from whatever was his summer job that year. I think he was working construction and mm-hmm. like he, he burst into the house, like right at the start of the penalty shootout, like, because he wanted to watch it. And it was like, this was not something that was typical, like us making appointment viewing for a women's sporting event, but they it's were in incredible. a World Cup final. Like these were it's winners. Incredible. It's, it's better than anything the men's national team ever did. Coming in 99 World Cup final, for people who don't fall aside, 98, the U.S. men's team left France in complete disgrace. They were a total bunch of losers bombing out of the World Cup in the first round in, in France. And so to follow that up a year later with U.S. women on home soil, not just doing well, but going to the final and, and winning, beating China in the, in the penalty shootout and Brandy Chastain, you know, ripping off her shirt and, you know, going nuts. Like we were raised to mainly support and cheer for men's sports. We didn't really have mm-hmm. the concept of cheering for women's sports, but it was, this was like, hey, U.S. women, you know, they, they won. They won the World Cup. Like, how can we not cheer for this? How can we not support this? It was incredible. It was huge. I mean, to watch it's the, the way that team came together, the way that they spoke about the game. Also, again, this is this is, again, like gendered like male nonsense and why I'm not, haven't always been into like the broness, you know, of sports, the ripped visors of it all always bothered me, but that the way they speak about the game is in such reverence to the game. I think more so in, in women's sport than there is in men's sport where they're trying to break things and be better and tough their way through it. And I think that the way women's sport is still played, it is even in cricket, there's so much more, to watch the game is so much more dynamic again people yell at me because i love it you know i don't watch hardly any basketball but i've been to new york liberty games but i've never been to a knicks game because i i love the way they play i love the way they pass i love the way that the game develops um tennis as well my goodness women's tennis at roland garros or or at wimbledon is such is is so much more of a spectacle at least to my eyes and to my brain and so I think that getting women involved in this sport from the grassroots will be huge for growing this sport. And I think that there's an opportunity like the U.S. women's national soccer team had for our, our women to grow quickly if the money and the resources are put in for them to do that. As far as umpiring goes, though, like I think the kids need to be inspired by somebody. They need to see a role model. They need to see that there are steps involved and Cricket in America, especially in New York, has never been for them because on every because that's, and that's just because of the way cricket works, right? Let's take a soccer field as an example. You have a soccer field for a day. You get a permit for a day for 12 hours on a soccer field. 
you can play four, five games. You start with your under eights in the morning, then you do your under 12s, then you do your high school kids, and then there's a men's match in the evening, right? You can play your whole club and there can be people there making teas and sandwiches all day and having a whole experience being out. At cricket, you can do all those things, but all you will see in the day is a men's club match because of the length of the game, because of the size of the facility that's needed for the game. We were talking about Van Cortland Park. We lost the ground two years ago, three years ago, and they put in two soccer pitches. Now you can run five games a day on each of those pitches and charge the same amount of money that you charge for one cricket game in a day, right? So the New York City Parks Department is also making their money off of this. That's my next dig at the Parks Department. So, <laughs> but the, but so the, I, I think that the way cricket simply has to be played, which is in a large ground and over the course of at a minimum, let's say a men's T20 match will take you three and a half, four, four hours um, at the club level. You're not going to get kids on the same grounds and you're not going to get dads taking their kids to cricket games because they've got a game. And most cricket has been suited and built for adult men in this country. And I think it's only in the last 10 years, maybe 20, that you've seen that change. Even here in the PSAL, it's great, fine, that there is that there is PSAL high school varsity cricket in New York City. Two of the 30 coaches have a cricketing background. The rest of them are soccer coaches, white American dudes who come up to me and go, hey, do you know what you're doing out here? Because I don't. Or just the other day, I did, a, I did a game in the PSAL where the coach came out. Oh, it's great to be out here. This is my first cricket game. He's the coach of a varsity cricket team. And, I, and he came out to his first cricket game to watch his team play. It's no wonder there were, how many were there? Something like 17 double bouncing no balls in that game. That's also a pitch problem in April. But Well, you, know, you say that I found it. This is kind of going off on a tangent, but the, the PSAL. We're two hours into tangents. This, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is just a run of the mill conversation on this podcast. <laughs> uh, we're at the halfway point, two hours, you could say. The, the PSAL has kind of got a very weird place in the cricket culture mm -hmm. in New York and in America in general, because yeah, you look at other sports and in the high school scene and any high school scene, a lot of the coaches who coach high school sports, they're not experts in that sport. They might not have played a high, you know, forget college or professional. They might not have even played high school. They might not have played period, but they're there to support the kids first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And some of the coaches might do it because, Hey, they get an extra $2,000 stipend. So I don't know. I'll, I'll figure out what this cricket. Not thing. bad guys. I'm not even criticizing them. They're just in the <laughs> position that they're in. Hey, right? it's, it's, <laughs> hey, if, hey, if you're looking for extra money and hustle, Hey, I'll, <laughs> I'll learn cricket. If it means $2,000 my paycheck. Exactly. That's the way to t get people interested in cricket is, you know, follow the money. Hey, if it's that, I'll, I'll, I'll read the MCC. Well, I'll buy that Tom Smith book off you, Brian. If, Hey, if it means $2,000 to my paycheck in the, uh, you know, living in New York city. Yeah. You sign me up. I'll be the cricket coach for, um, you know, Stuyvesant or whatever. Mm -hmm. They've got a coach. Stuyvesant's yeah, got a coach. Yeah, they, <laughs> Springfield, they, Springfield gardens in Queens or, uh, William C. Bryant. Those kind of those kind of places don't have don't have proper coaching. <laughs> but you know the the very first year of the PSAL, I think back in two thousand eight, the coach whose name escapes me, she was a, a woman mm -hmm. coach uh, newcomers. Mm -hmm. Newcomers won the title. She oh, had never been around cricket any before in her life. She had no idea about cricket. But what did she do? 
she knew how to coach. I think she coached either volleyball or field hockey. Mm-hmm. And she knew how to coach. She knew how to motivate. She didn't know the she didn't know the LBW law. Mm-hmm. But do you need to know the LBW law to motivate high school kids and and get them cohesive yeah. and in a team setting, mm-hmm. understanding the assets? No, she proved it. She led them to the title. Sure. Oh, over and above other high schools where that first year there were a number of high schools who had coaches who could teach the four defense and you get your high mm-hmm. level here and. And you get your front foot and your back foot and your head has to be over the ball and this and that. They knew everything there was about cricket. They didn't go to the final, let alone right. win the final. Yeah. She, she led the, t- the team to the final. And one of the other programs that's been highly successful consistently over the years, John Adams and their head coach, who I, uh, John Navaretti, or sorry, Alex Navaretti, John Adams High School, I'm one of the two. Alex Navaretti, who people may not, who don't know him, I would be surprised if anybody who watches or listens to the podcast regularly would know who Alex Navarrete is but if you follow PSAL cricket you would but he's I believe he's either uh Uruguayan immigrant I, I, I think I I talked to him last year I think he I we're, we're gonna get in trouble for this he's either yeah, Argentinian he South American he's and, Argentinian yeah, or Uruguayan he's from somewhere in mm-hmm. South America originally but he immigrated to America and he coaches soccer and he coaches swimming and those are his two primary sports that he's coached for years but the kids at John Adams wanted to play cricket. And he said, I might not know cricket, but I'm a sports coach. I know how to coach. I know yeah. how to motivate. And John Adams, he's won, I don't know how many titles. And Lunch. talking to him, <laughs> you talk to him now, he knows a hell of a lot about cricket. He knows the strategy. He's he's beefed up. He, you know, he, he got his Tom Smith. I don't know if he got his Tom Smith, but he got <laughs> some sort of books out and went online, went on Wikipedia, went on YouTube, self-taught to some extent. But USA Cricket or USAC at the time in the ICC Americas put on some seminars Mm-hmm. for the local coaches at the PSAL to get a little bit more enhanced coaching acumen uh, to get the basics of what is essential and here are the things you need to focus on and you can build off that, but here's what mm-hmm. we're going to help you out with. And he's gone through that process and and he's proven it. And the coach at Newcomers, again, I apologize, her name escapes me, but um, the two of them have shown that you don't need to be an X's and O's and diagram sure. and this and that. If you can coach kids... And you know how to motivate. There's nothing that should hold people back. But what I found fascinating in this context, and this is kind of the larger point I'm kind of circling back to, is that I've observed, I don't know how true you feel this is or not, but there is a huge amount of envy and jealousness amongst a large section of the cricket community who feels that the success of an Alex Navaretti or the the coach who was at Newcomers previously they see it as the PSEL not being a legitimate league mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, this is a person who doesn't know anything about cricket coach the team to a title. And, and I, I can't tell you, I've, I've been to, I think, four or five, maybe more, at least four or five PSAL finals. And you'll see coaches who are like academy coaches mm-hmm. in New York, New Jersey will come to these matches. And instead of sitting on the sidelines and talking to them and saying like, what a great scene this is. You've got all these parents, you've got all these, high school friends and peers who were coming to support the cricketers. And it's a tournament final to New York final. Like just, you know, like you can envision New York PSAL basketball final at Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden or Barclay Center, the PSAL baseball final at City They're Field, huge, or yeah. whatever, like this is a big deal. Like, and we should be supporting these kids. What do you hear them talking about on the sideline of the matches? This coach sucks. I can't believe this team made the final. This is ridiculous. This is an embarrassment. What, you know, what's your issue? Why are you talking like this? This kid, look, he's supposed to be the best player in the league. Look at how he's holding the bat. He's got his arm here. He's doing this. His front foot's doing this. 
he's he's not being coached by a proper coach. I'm a proper coach. Uh, I should be the one coaching this team. I should be the one taking them to the final. This coach is giving them bad habits and mm-hmm. and he's doing this and that and it's all wrong. This is the wrong kind of cricket. Mm-hmm. This is terrible. You know, there's so many people who you're you're playing cricket wrong. This is the bad cricket, yeah. wrong cricket. Yeah, I'm gonna wag my finger. Wrong, bad, you know, bad dog, bad boy, wrong cricket, bad cricket. How, you know, what are you doing? Get you know, get with the program rather than just appreciating like these are kids playing cricket. I never hear these things. When I go to a, a high school baseball game, my high school in New Jersey, you know, we've had a number of players go on to play professional baseball or get NCAA scholarships. Rick Porcello is the most famous out of Seton Hall Prep. He was a Cy Young Award winner for the Red Sox a couple of years ago. But not everybody's going to be Rick Porcello. Not everybody's going to have a college scholarship. There's going to be a lot of players on that field who never amount to anything. And I don't, I've never heard on the sidelines of a high school baseball game or a high school hockey game, like, this kid's skating technique sucks. Who's his coach? And this is ridiculous. And what is he, this kid's, his swing, he's never going to catch up to a 95 mile an hour fastball with his mm-hmm. elbow like this and his hips like this. I only hear that at cricket matches. And the, so the, I find it very peculiar that the cricket ecosystem, in, instead of supporting mm-hmm. junior cricket and grassroots mm-hmm. cricket and supporting cricket in general and saying, wow, what a great thing this is. We've got kids playing cricket. It's no, it's the wrong kind of kids cricket. Right. Right. aren't doing right I, I don't they shouldn't be allowed to play and this is this is this is just not cricket yeah <laughs> i think that i think cricket is so tech people get so lost in how technical cricket is and there are technical aspects of the game that like if if you're picking it up not as a not as a young child that are really hard to get into so we have a big problem in the psal with chucking where we mostly don't call it we warn them we tell their coaches what they're up to. We tell them what they're doing, and but we can't really offer a way to fix that. So what I think is missing in, in the robustness of PSAL cricket, because I love a PSAL, uh, a baseball game, a high, high school baseball game, a high school basketball game. I, I, I enjoy sport for sport's sake, as we've talked about. And so being able just to go and watch those matches is amazing. But kids have grown up on basketball courts and on soccer fields. And if there's a robust club scene younger than high school in a lot of those other sports. And in New York, at the elite level, they're for wealthier people who are paying lots of money to be on, to be in academies and stuff like that, which is also a problem in cricket. I think we need to democratize cricket a lot more, make it a lot cheaper, but there needs to be somebody paying for that. And PSAL can be a part of that. Um, somebody like Jamie Harrison in down in Maryland, who's doing his mega cricket work and doing his uh, young kids cricket work where they're playing an adapted version of the game, I think is a great way to learn the game. And I think that if the first time you experience cricket is in high school, then yeah. And, and you only have an American coach who doesn't technically play the game or, or a Uruguayan coach or whoever, um, that there is space for that. But it's hard to know and it's hard to sort of watch that cricket continue when there are kids playing against those kids who have never touched a ball before, who might not be very athletic, who are playing in those academies and who are playing senior men's cricket on the weekend. As a player who plays for the Phoenix Cricket Club in the New York National League, top flight in that league, men's you know, uh, league, they, they've paid players to come over from overseas to play there. And I'd, I'd met this kid a couple times. I'd, I'd had him on the field as a player when I was umpiring. And then I saw him at a PSAL match. He was keeping and captaining for his school as well. I thought he was 23, 24 years old. 
And he is on the same team sometime as a kid who's never touched a cricket ball before. And I think the inequities don't come because the coach, maybe it's their first time doing a game, but because they're most of the kids haven't had a robust youth program leading up to that, that they haven't had mega cricket or I'm not even sure what USA cricket's uh, youth cricket program is called these days, but those things are not coming through at the grassroots level, I think, as much as they should be. And you'd hope, like I said earlier, about getting recruited to colleges and stuff from playing sports, right? Like every time there was an Easter weekend or a holiday weekend, I was on the field practicing with my team and high school sports were treated really seriously. And so I, I understand a little bit without any of the cynicism where some of those academy coaches are coming from, but also the PSAL coaches are amazing human beings that do what they do. The, I'm trying to remember which, uh, which team it is, but there's, the, there's a coach who's been doing this five, six years now. He knows exactly how to score now. Um, he gets really excited when he'll, he'll like say something to one of his players and then say to me, did I get that right? Okay, good. You know, like, and that is a moment where I think there are coaches who can learn, but it's hard with such a technical sport like cricket, especially with something like chucking, where if you haven't grown up learning that motion with your shoulder, it's really hard to pick up at 14. I had a way, I had too much trouble trying to pick it up at 24 that I've, I've bowled twice competitively and I'm terrible. So no one ever wants to see that again. But I think there needs to be a medium somewhere. I think there needs to be those sessions with those coaches, you know, to say, okay, this is, this is the very basic of the laws. And here are some very basic coaching things that you can go through um, to help your players develop technically a little bit. But I don't know. It's hard to understand what the culture um, of PSAL cricket is. Um, it's very different than senior men's cricket. It's different than other youth cricket uh, I've done in New Jersey and then also just in Texas recently where I did some of the women's matches there where most of the players were 13, 14, 15 years old in some of those Houston Open uh, women's T20s that we did. So I don't know. I hope that there is a more robust youth scene that comes through in New York. And that's all about time and space and money, about when you can get fields, when you can get facilities. Are you able to have winter practice? Do you have nets or are you throwing tennis balls at each other in the gym? That second bit is great. We would love kids to be doing that rather than doing nothing. I feel like they're more often maybe doing nothing rather than even throwing tennis balls at each other in the gym because they show up to the first game of the season. The kids showed up to the first game of the season last couple of years with little understanding of what the rules were and how the game was going to flow and with very little understanding of how to interact with each other and with the umpire and with the opposing team in the middle of a match. So all of the conventions of cricket that you just sort of learn as you watch and then play in 100, 200, 400 games as a kid, you sort of learn those things that nobody ever teaches you. And that's not happening in youth cricket, at least the youth cricket that I've seen, especially in this area. I know there's a lot more youth cricket happening in Jersey, where there's a lot more space. I know there's obviously a lot, lot more happening in places like Texas and places like Atlanta, um, places like California, where they have full-fledged youth leagues. I don't know who's umpiring those games though. And I don't know if those umpires are paid. I'm pretty sure they might just be the mom or dad who has the most knowledge about the sport at the time. So I would love to see a youth umpire thing 
come up, like we talked about getting every 14 year old, you know, a bit of a, a bit of instruction into, into the laws of the game. But I think it's most important that they have a cricket ball in their hand as much, you know, as soon as possible and that they understand the game. They grow up watching the game as much as possible. You talked about going to baseball, sitting there all day while they're, you know, and, and needing to score all day while you're there. And that's how you learn the game. It's hard to compete with the PlayStation. I get it. Like I have TikTok. This thing is on my person all of the time. I have a supercomputer in my pocket. And again, I just, I, I can do that for hours and not even think about it. And these kids are growing up in a world, I'm not trying to blame technology for everything, because now I'm the old man, but they're growing up in a world where their attention is fragmented and it's a lot brighter and it's a lot more sort of grabbing of things quickly. And I don't think that that necessarily means we can only play T10s and T20s because like we talked about earlier, cricket is a constant churn of individual battles. It's part of what I love about it. It's part of what I love about being an umpire. And we talk about this in our training that a ball, you, you sit, you stand there, you concentrate, you breathe in, you let the ball happen, you let the play happen, and then you relax. The ball goes dead. You just get to relax. That's a reset. Bang. My, my ADHD is, is hooked, right? Like well, that's one contest I've watched. I've watched 500 years of history happen in three seconds. And I get to do that 240 times in a game over and over and over and over again. Every single contest is different. And every single thing works differently. And I, I love that. I relish that about the game. And I wonder if that is coming through in the way that it's being taught at the younger ages. So you got to hear a large portion of Brian Arcane's journey into cricket, um, soccer and lacrosse and swimming, Gaelic football and Aussie rules football. He's done a lot of stuff and stage acting. He found his way to cricket. There aren't too many people like Brian who have experienced the wide assortment of things inside and outside of different sports that Brian has before bringing all that life experience to cricket. And he goes into even greater detail about a lot of the things he's come across while umpiring in the New York Tri-State area and elsewhere in the country, including the story of his arrest. We mentioned it a few times. We alluded to it, but we saved that for part two. Talks about the time he was arrested while officiating and organizing a cricket event in New York City. So we'll get to that story in part two of the podcast, as well as many, many other parts of Brian R. Kane's umpiring and officiating experiences in American cricket. I want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast on Patreon. Everybody who is a Patreon supporter helps to keep the podcast operating on an episode-by-episode basis. And I also encourage everybody to subscribe to get the latest episodes on YouTube, if you're watching the video version, or via Spotify, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, if you're downloading the audio version. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Delpena reminding everybody, God bless America and God bless American cricket.